Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. The Crusades were a long series of religious wars between Christians and Muslims, mostly, lasting roughly two centuries. Battles and various clashes that were crusade-esque would roll out for longer than that, but the main thrust of the fighting took place in just under 200 years. The primary goal of the Crusaders was to take the Holy Land away from Muslim forces, especially the city of Jerusalem, a land full of sacred sites for both Christianity and Islam, and also the Abrahamic root of those Western religions, Judaism. In 1095, Pope Urban II issued a speech at the Council of Claremont, calling Christians to take up arms to help the Christian Byzantine Empire in their fight against Islamic forces. This speech marked the beginning of a long series of conflicts that led to the deaths of an estimated 1.7 million people. Historians now estimate that only 1 in 20 even survived to reach the Holy Land on their quests. When the Crusades kicked off, the Pope assured knights, nobles, and a bunch of regular citizens that they would be forgiven of all of their sins if they died while participating in the Crusades. The Pope essentially gave Western European forces a license to kill and also to commit various other crimes without any spiritual consequences. All would be washed away if one was fighting for the Pope. I mean, God, for the glory of Rome. While many people absolutely did participate in the Crusades for pious faith-based reasons, soldiers fighting to the death because they truly believed that it was God's will for them to do so, people convinced they were literally fighting the forces of evil. Others had much more selfish, worldly motivations, such as land, money, and of course, power. The Crusades were a long, brutal, and bloody series of wars that in the end did little, actually, to accomplish their stated goals. But they did have an enormous impact on medieval Europe, and they still have an impact felt in our world today. In this episode, we'll discuss an overview of the importance of the Holy Land, the location at the center of the Crusades, the causes of the conflict, the timeline of the Crusades, and we'll meet its most important leaders. And I'll share this information in a way that ideally does not come across as some dry, boring history lesson. History is tremendously exciting and entertaining if you're honest in how you share its stories that are so often so incredibly fucked up and darkly comedic. Today, I'll share some of the extreme hardships soldiers and citizens endured, go over a doomed mission of a completely insane pastor on a donkey carrying a supposed letter from God, and so much more. 
on another historical, we meat sacks have always been so damn crazy. Be glad you're at least alive now when the world is a bit less bloody and insane edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> you're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. Welcome to the 50,436th straight week of Time Suck. Or something like that. Or not something like that at all. Uh, I'm Dan Cummins, Suck Master, Store Detective Dispatcher, R. Kelly Urine Tester. Tester, not taster. And you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, Hail Lucifina, praise be to Bo Jangles and glory be to Triple M. Uh, quick merch announcement, a little shout out, and then we're off and running. Introducing the uh, new Bad Magic Pride collection in the Bad Magic store. We have everything from swim trunks to water bottles to giant pride flags. Many of you have asked for a proper collection for quite a while. And we're happy to finally launch uh, something for you this Pride Month. We celebrate the shared experience of learning with our LGBTQIA plus friends and allies and the contributions you make to the world of education, law enforcement, healthcare, and just fucking everything else. All the other aspects that make our society as rich as it is. So celebrate with us this month by checking out all the cool new products and designs of BadMagicMerch.com. And if you want to share your pictures on socials once you get your merch, tag Bad Magic Pride so Logan can find your posts and uh, we can check them out. And now a quick shout out to Burt Kreishner. This guy has a new movie out, The Machine, and I'm not going to lie and say that I've seen it yet, but I, I hope that many of you have uh, done so or will do so. Watching this guy go balls out on social media, often damn near literally balls out. In promoting a movie he starred in about a story he's told on stage for years, seeing how fucking pumped he is to watch this dream unfold, it just keeps putting a big-ass smile on my face. He and Joe Coy have been absolutely crushing it the last few years, and they are truly two of the nicest guys I've ever met in the world of stand-up. Uh, and that inspires me. Just consistently great people. And I love watching great people, uh, you know, do great things. And just wanted to share that. They didn't ask me to. They may never even know that I said anything, and they don't need to, but I feel good. Uh, now let's dig into a story featuring some people who were great, but also a lot of people who weren't even in the fucking ballpark of great. Hop on to your mighty war horse or crusading donkey. <laughs> it's time for a quest. The space lizards have decreed that we suck to crusades today for the glory of Rome. I mean, uh, glory of God. So how are we going to break down this massive topic in roughly two hours? I was worried that this is going to be impossible. Total shit show. Uh, but then I watched the delightful John Green uh, break all this down in a crash course YouTube video in just 11 minutes. Uh, it was great. Uh, did he go into as much detail as I will? No, but hot damn, did he squeeze a lot of entertaining info about the Crusades into about 10 minutes. So well done, Mr. Green, you fantastic teacher, you. I'm going to start off my Crusades presentation by explaining a bit about how Christians view the Crusades. Hint, they were fucking pumped to fight. Uh, followed by how the Muslims view the Crusades. Hint, they were not fucking pumped about it. Uh, followed by an overview of the causes of the Crusades. We will also discuss some of the many hardships soldiers and citizens faced while battling, traveling, simply trying to exist during the time of the Crusades. Followed by a timeline of some of the most important events of the centuries-long conflict. And finally, how the Crusades still affect us today. And we will, of course, delve into some silly side roads throughout a lot of this. And I will undoubtedly fuck up so many words today. Been a while since I spent this many hours looking over pronunciation guides. Damn you, ancient people and cities. 
All right. Uh, History.com defines the Crusades as a series of religious wars between Christians and Muslims started primarily to secure control of holy sites considered sacred by both groups. In all, eight major crusade expeditions, varying in size, strength, and degree of success, occurred between 1096 and 1291 CE. The costly, violent, and often ruthless conflicts enhanced the status of European Christians, making them major players in the fight for land in the Middle East. A few other sources separate a final battle of uh, what many consider to be the Eighth Crusade into the Ninth Crusade. And some sources list the year the Crusade started as 1095, not 1096. It was a little slug on the, you know, they make an announcement and it would take a little bit to get all the uh, machines of war ready to go do some fighting. So the dates get a little fuzzy. Uh, by the end of the 11th century, Western Europe's various states collectively had become world powers, but Western Europe was still backwards compared to other Mediterranean civilizations like the Byzantine Empire centered around modern day Turkey and the Islamic Empire of the Middle East and Northern Africa. At the time of the Crusades, Byzantium, a Christian nation, also known as the Eastern Roman Empire, was losing territory to the Islamic Seljuk Turks, the key players slash enemy of the early Crusades. Some boogeymen who terrified many Europeans. And they could be scary as fuck. Everyone was scary back then. There was no white knights, no clear-cut good guys, no clear-cut bad guys. The Muslims butchered people for not worshiping their version of God, butchered a lot of innocent people, and so did the Christians. After years of this conflict, General Alexius uh, Comnenus took the Byzantium throne in 1081 and changed his title to Emperor Alexius, little fucking upgrade, Alexius I, uh, to consolidate his control. And Alexius appealed to the Pope for help for in his fight you know, against the Turks. And then the Pope was like, you made your choice when you broke away from the glory of Rome, motherfucker. Why don't you ask your patriarch for help? Isn't that what you call your spiritual leader? You fake Catholic fucks. You're not real Christians until you bend the knee to me. No, he didn't say that. He might've thought it. Uh, he actually decided to extend an olive branch to the Church of Rome's Eastern Christian brethren. And why would he do that? Well, for a lot of reasons. Biggest one might be that if uh, Muslims took down Byzantium, they would now be next door to lands where Christian rulers had pledged loyalty to the Pope. And if those Muslims then pushed a, a bit further west, well, down goes the Catholic Church. Down goes the Pope. So self-preservation was clearly a factor. Also, heeding uh, Alexius's call and calling upon Christian Europe to join together and fight the Muslims was a great way to unite the various bickering knights and nobility of Europe. Bickering factions that all still pledge loyalty to Rome and therefore a bunch of tithes. Uh, united these factions against a common foreign enemy would keep Christian forces from fighting each other and send them fighting people who didn't give a flying fuck about the Pope. And if successful, the Crusades would turn Muslim nations into more Christian nations tied to the Roman church, more territory connected spiritually and financially to the Vatican. The Crusades had the potential to be very good for Catholic business. And they were for a while. And by commanding Christian Europe to go take Jerusalem and other Holy Land, the Pope was demonstrating in a very real way that he was the most powerful ruler of Europe above any singular king or emperor. They may rule their kingdoms, but he ruled all the Christian kingdoms. No one other than the Pope could get numerous nations to go fight the Muslims. When kings and other rulers led their people to fight in the Crusades, they were publicly also bending their knee to Rome. Finally, to be fair, I'm sure that many Christians, possibly even Pope Urban II, dude who launched the Crusades, truly believed in the righteousness of their religion and therefore uniting to fight against those who professed a competing faith, a faith that would have been, uh, you know, considered not just heretical, but even satanic, 
since worshiping anyone but the Christian God, you know, would be by default worshiping a false God. Even if it's the same God as Islam, it's not the same version of the same God, right? This fighting would be viewed as following divine will. How could they consider themselves Christian and not fight against forces that if allowed to continue to prosper and multiply could theoretically wipe out the Christian faith? For all these, and I'm sure other reasons, letting various nobles, knights, and peasants greatly increase their social and financial standings through conquering and plundering. On November of 1095, at the end of the Council of Claremont, Pope Urban II called on Christians to take up arms to help the Byzantine Empire and also seize the Holy Land from the Muslims, reclaiming the land where most of the stories from the Bible were set, right? The birthplace of the Christian Savior. Uh, that would have been huge for the Pope and other Christians. Big moral boost, you know, big uh, uh, adrenaline shot, you know, for the Christian faith. Uh, Jerusalem has been taken back by Christian forces, a sign that Christianity is the one true faith. It'd be that kind of victory, the ultimate feather in the Pope's cap. This conference in Claremont marked the beginning of the Crusades. Military leaders and regular citizens all around Western Europe were now eager to take up arms, especially because they were promised forgiveness for their sins if they participated. That was huge. Uh, One witness to Pope Urban's speech documented a portion of it as follows. All who die by the way, whether by land or by sea, or in battle against the pagans, shall have immediate remission of sins. This I grant them through the power of God, which I am invested. Oh, what a disgrace if such a despised and base race, talking about the Muslims there to be clear, which worships demons should conquer a people which has the faith of omnipotent God and is made glorious with the name of Christ. With that reproaches will the Lord overwhelm us if you do not aid those who, with us, profess the Christian religion. Let those who have been accustomed unjustly to wage private warfare against the faithful now go against the infidels and end with victory this war which should have been begun long ago. Oh, fuck yeah, bro. Nice. Get out there and fucking wipe those infidels off the earth. Something you motherfuckers should have done a long time ago. And whatever you do towards that end, God's fucking cool with it. Cut their motherfucking heads off, right? It was that kind of tone of a speech. Uh, the Crusades would uh, not just involve battle-tested soldiers doing the uh, Pope's bidding here. Actually, it may have uh, mostly involved people who weren't battle-tested. They didn't keep the best uh, conscription records or any records. But based on contemporary accounts, historians feel certain that farmers, fishermen, tradesmen, kids, the elderly, women, all kinds of people would follow the Pope's command to get those demon-worshipping motherfuckers who uh, happened to have, you know, either been indoctrinated into a different faith since birth or had chosen to believe for a variety of reasons, a different religious story, that just like all religious stories, if you were to invent it out of thin air today and tell it to some rational friends, they would for sure think you're absolutely fucking mental. Viewed in this light, this justification for the Crusades was pretty fucking crazy. Uh, many people who participated in the Crusades were pious Christians who thought they really were fighting for God, a holy war. Others, as I mentioned, less pious in their motivations. Some people joined the Crusades because they wanted to experience the adventure of a lifetime and see more of the world than they otherwise could. Maybe also get some treasure and some land, especially if they were nobility. A lot of serfs joined the Crusades for a chance at freedom, a chance to build a new life in a new Christian nation where they wouldn't be shackled by some lord or, or baron or whoever's chains of indentured servitude. A variety of powerful knights seen as threatening by the nobility around them were sent out by kings to reduce their influence back home, right? Uh, Keep things a little fucking calmer with the nobility. Keep the nobles a little happier. And the Crusades led to several holy military orders full of knights, 
orders that the Crusades helped become fantastically wealthy, such as the infamous Knights Templar, the Teutonic Knights, the Knights Hospitaller. In summary, Christians view the Crusades as a noble just war for the purpose of taking back land they viewed as rightfully theirs. And the Crusades galvanized numerous Christian nations and various Christian peoples into a sum greater than its individual parts. A big old, a big old Christian juggernaut uh, that had a chance to defeat massive, uh, massive, excuse me, Muslim armies that no single Christian nation would stand a chance against. So how did the Muslims view the Crusades? They fucking loved them. They couldn't get enough. They've been bored for years. And they've been looking for somebody to come down and try and cut their fucking heads off or burn them alive. No, they, they of course, hated this shit. In 2007, Paul M. Cobb, professor of Islamic history at the University of Pennsylvania, and Suleiman A. Murad, professor of religion at Smith College, discussed how Muslims view the Crusades very differently than Christians. Cobb explained that Muslim sources just, uh, um, you know, flat out did not recognize the Crusades and still don't as being any sort of godly endeavor, saying, they recognize the events we call the Crusades today simply as another wave of Frankish aggression on the Muslim world. And Frankish often uh, used in sources to refer to Western Christians, Western Europe. Uh, many Muslims at the time believed that their God would protect them against the Christian Kafirs. Kafir, essentially the Muslim term for infidel. At the time of the Crusades, the Islamic world as defined by experts was those lands that recognized Muslim rulers and the authority of Islamic law. This area went west to east from the, uh, Spain and Portugal to India, north to south from Central Asia to Sudan. While Europe, uh, Europe was in the Dark Ages during medieval times when the Crusades kicked off, Islamic states were in their Golden Age, which lasted from the 9th to the 14th century. While almost every form of intellectualism was very much frowned upon at the time in Western Europe, it was, you know, study the Bible or fucking don't study, study anything for a lot of people. There were significant advances in the Islamic world in mathematics, astronomy, medicine, and more. Uh, for example, one physician who lived in Cairo uh, in the 13th century was the first person to describe the pulmonary circulation of blood, i.e. blood flow relating to the lungs. And he did that about 400 years before Europeans did. Paul Cobb further described the difference in these two worlds. The Islamic world was much bigger and much more urbanized with more wealth and cultural patronage and more ethnic and linguistic diversity. Whereas the cities of Western Christendom had populations measured in the thousands, Paris and London would have had maybe 20,000 each. Baghdad likely had hundreds of thousands of citizens. He continued, so we're talking about an invasion of peoples from a marginal, underdeveloped region of the world to one of the most urbanized, culturally sophisticated zones on the planet. That accounts for the sense of trauma from the Muslim side. How could people from the edge of the known world invade this divinely protected, culturally sophisticated, and militarily triumphant region? There was a lot of soul-searching on the part of the Muslims. Uh, Suleiman Murad added that many Muslims viewed Europeans as cross-eyed barbarians. Europeans were viewed as unclean, their medical practices as barbaric. Paul Cobb said Europe was considered cold and dark and shrouded in mist. It was believed the Franks were hairy, pale, and from the dark and unwashed north. The medieval Islamic uh, world's view of the West is a mirror of today's view of Islam by the West. Exotic and distant populated by a fanatical warlike population, slow to develop economically backwards. Pretty interesting. Uh, as we'll see towards the end of this episode, these uh, differing attitudes about the Crusades and the Holy Land still affect us today. According to Thomas F. Madden's book, The Concise History of the Crusades, Madden being a professor of history and director of the Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies at St. Louis University, the word crusade comes from cruce signare, meaning those signed by the cross. 
Madden writes, Unlike Islam, Christianity had no well-defined concept of holy war before the Middle Ages. Christ had no armies at his disposal, nor did his early followers. Only in AD 312, after the conversion of Christianity of the Roman Emperor Constantine I, did the religion come into direct contact with statecraft and warfare. Within a century, Christianity and the Roman Empire were fused tightly together. Christians and government found themselves faced with questions of life and death, war and peace. In the 5th century, St. Augustine outlined the necessary conditions for a Christian leader to wage a just war, but he was quick to insist that the faithful not engage in wars of religious conversion or for the purpose of destroying heresies or killing pagans. Warfare was a necessary evil sometimes forced upon a good leader. It was not to be a tool of the church. Well, clearly times changed when Pope Urban II called down the thunder. He felt very differently than St. Augustine. He 100% made warfare one of the primary tools of the church. And in doing so, he really changed the course of history. He set the Western world on a very different path, and we're still on it today. Madden's book adds that Muslims believe that a religious war called jihad, meaning struggle, could only be waged against unbelievers. Unbelievers were people who refused to accept or believe in the one true God, the God of Abraham, the God of the Quran, or those who wanted to harm Islam. Most Muslims believe that Jewish people and Christians did worship the same God, but since they did not accept the prophet Muhammad, they did so incorrectly. They didn't understand all of God's teachings. However, Muslims, most Muslims, still believe that Christians and Jews should be free to practice their religion unless they actively persecuted or hindered the advance of Islam. However, hindering the advance of Islam could be interpreted in a lot of different ways, like not allowing Muslim invaders to just, you know, take your land and replace Christianity or whatever other religion was the primary religion of your people with Islam. Uh, while most scholars seem to believe that Jews and Christians faced better uh, under or fared better, excuse me, under Islamic rule than Muslims or Jews fared under Christian rule, uh, various massacres of Jews and Christians by Muslims did occur, to be clear, just to make this not seem too one-sided. By the early 8th century, Muslims entered and conquered modern-day Spain, which had been predominantly Christian. Also in the 8th century, uh, Muslim forces crossed the Pyrenees Mountains and entered the heart of Catholic Europe. In 732, Muslim forces were defeated by Frankish leader Charles Martel at the Battle of Tours, driving them back into Spain. But Spain, still too close for comfort for neighboring Christian nations. European Christians did not want Muslims in Spain because they considered it Christian land. Madden writes, Was it not self-evident that a Christian who fought to reclaim lands conquered by unbelievers was himself fighting for Christ? Thus, it was in dealing with the Muslim presence in Spain that Western soldiers and theologians first cut their teeth on the idea of holy war. Their reconquista or reconquest was the training ground for the theological and moral justification of the latter crusading movement. Now, Anastasia, that's, I, like, I love this kind of stuff because, you know, this stuff never happens out of a vacuum. There's always precursors. Uh, now let's talk about the land at the heart of the Crusades, the Holy Land for all Western religions. As we talked about, the Islamic world of the Middle Ages extended from India to Spain. This included the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding Holy Land. The Holy Land is defined by the BBC as places around Israel and Palestine connected to the birth and life of Jesus. Jerusalem was, and of course still is, a very sacred city, not just to Christians, but to Jewish people and Muslims as well. According to History.com, Jerusalem is a city located in modern-day Israel and is considered by many to be one of the holiest places in the world. Jerusalem is a site of major significance for the three largest monotheistic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And both Israel and Palestine have claimed Jerusalem as a capital city. Because of these strong, age-old associations, bloody conflicts to control the city and sites within it have been waged for thousands of years. Scholars believe that the first human settlements were established in Jerusalem around 
3500 BCE, and that maybe by around 1000 BCE, a man known as King David conquered Jerusalem and made it the capital of the Jewish kingdom. Uh, Did you know that we actually don't know anything about King David, his direct descendants, other than what is written about him and them in the Old Testament of the Bible? Right, a portion of an old 9th century BCE stone slab, just a few lines of Aramaic thought to reference the murder of a member of the house of David. The only non-biblical archaeological evidence that the house of David actually ever existed. I was surprised to find that out. I thought there'd be uh, more archaeological evidence for David than there currently is. Uh, The Babylonians occupied Jerusalem in 586 BCE, destroyed Solomon's temple and sent Jews into exile. And then 50 years later, Persian King Cyrus allowed Jewish people to return and rebuild their temple. Alexander the Great conquered Jerusalem in 332 BCE. And in the following centuries, the city was ruled by many different groups, Romans, Persians, Arabs, uh, Fatimids, uh, Seljuk Turks, Crusaders, Egyptians, uh, Mamluks, uh, Islamists, all governed an area that has perhaps historically experienced less political stability than literally any other place on earth. And due to the nature of the area, having now long been home to the most important religious sites for three of the most powerful religions in the world, the area will likely never see stability unless humanity eventually moves away from Abrahamic religions. Uh, Jewish people believe that Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem is the place where Abraham almost sacrificed his son Isaac to prove he trusted God. From the book of Deuteronomy, Abraham's grandson Jacob learned that Jerusalem is the site that the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes as a place established in his name. Jerusalem was the capital of Israel under King David in the Hebrew Bible and the city where Solomon, his son and successor, probably built a temple. And again, I say probably because uh, there's a lot of archaeologists who are unsure if Solomon from the Old Testament ever existed or that if he did exist, he was not the same man from Scripture. Based on what evidence has been found so far, he's a religious figure much more than a historical one. But that, of course, could change. Dude lived a long time ago in an area where, you know, there isn't firm archaeological evidence for almost anyone. Muslims believe that Jerusalem was the last place visited uh, by the prophet Muhammad in the 7th century before he ascended into heaven and spoke with God. Before Muhammad ascended into heaven, he was flown from Mecca to Jerusalem by a mythical creature, as it is said in the religious texts. Uh, During the journey overnight, Muhammad was purified to prepare to meet God. God instructed Muhammad to recite the Salat or ritual prayer 50 times a day. Muhammad asked God to reduce the number of prayers to five a day. I'm sure, uh, sure Muslims appreciate that, you know. 45 times less a day. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Uh, Muhammad saw his mission as an extension of the Abrahamic traditions of Judaism and Christianity. Therefore, the first Qibla or direction in which Muslims should pray actually was Jerusalem. I didn't know that before this week. Uh, Today, Muslims bow towards Mecca, but that's not where it started. Maybe, maybe that's what Muhammad did. Uh, There have been scholars, some of them Muslim scholars who doubt that Muhammad ever existed as a real historical figure. Just like many scholars doubt Jesus ever existed as a real historical figure. There's no definitive physical or archaeological evidence uh, of the existence of either Jesus or Muhammad. Uh, Only religious teachings point to the reality of Muhammad. Uh, There's a little more for Jesus. Uh, While some Roman historians who were not followers of Jesus did reference his existence, there's no equivalent for Muhammad. Interesting, right? So many wars fought due to the clash of religious differences between Christianity and Islam, religions whose central figures we actually know very little about. Did they even exist? And if they did, Regarding their potential holiness, you know, were they who scripture says they were? We're just taking the word of followers slash authors who lived over a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago, ancient authors who we also know very little about. 
Ancient Greek and ancient Roman authors and historians, scholars have come to accept more and more that some of what they wrote actually happened, but much of it was myth building, political spin, or outright fabrication. No academic believes in the literal truth of, say, Homer's Odyssey or the Iliad anymore. Many scholars don't even think Homer was a real historical figure. And more and more scholars are coming to the same conclusions about the events of the Torah, the Bible, and the Quran. And it's so fascinating that so much of world history has been shaped by followers of books full of all kinds of claims whose veracity no one can conclusively prove. Sometimes all this feels uh, as absurd to me as wars being fought between people who believe Stephen King's The Stand is the one true account of how the world will end and other people who believe that Robert Kirkman's The Walking Dead graphic novel series is the one true depiction of how the world will end. What a great cosmic joke all of this might just be. Uh, back to real history now. Islam names Jerusalem. <clears throat> excuse me. Pollen is thick in the air around here right now. Uh, Islam names Jerusalem as one of the cities that will be a key location during the end times. Jerusalem is also extremely important to Christians because Jesus was said to have been crucified there around 30 CE. And who ruled this holy land at the time of Christ? The Romans. Romans and then Eastern Romans ruled the holy land for centuries. They ruled as they converted to Christianity in the 4th century, and then Muslims will conquer the Holy Land in 638 CE. Various Islamic kingdoms have ruled the Holy Land over the centuries, and when the Muslim Seljuk Turks took control around 1077, they made it harder for Christian pilgrims to visit, which uh, of course increased tensions between the Islamic and Christian worlds. Christians have been making pilgrimages, uh, pilgrimages to the Holy Land at least as far back as the 6th century. The Seljuk Turks believed that Christians in the Holy Land were a threat to their authority, So they imposed taxes and charges on Christians who wanted to visit holy sites. Christians and pilgrims were mistreated, sometimes killed, when they ventured into Muslim territory. Author Thomas Madden writes that the Seljuk Turks then arrived in the Byzantine region in the 11th century, conquered present-day Armenia, Syria, and Palestine. And when they conquered Jerusalem, or when they had conquered it earlier, uh, they destroyed Christian churches in Muslim lands and uh, killed clergy members. However, they soon learned that Christian pilgrims brought plenty of money into the city, so they stopped Killing Christians, it was, it was bad for business. And what sites were pilgrims visiting? There are several important sites in Jerusalem, important to Christianity or Islam or both. And of course, also Judaism. Uh, the Temple Mount is a 35-acre compound located on a hill. It contains important religious structures like the Western Wall, Dome of the Rock, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. This is considered the holiest place in Judaism, an area reference in Jewish scripture. The first and second Jewish temples were located here. The Temple Mount is considered the third holiest site in Islam, with Mecca being the first, Medina being the second. The Temple Mount is mentioned by prophets in the Old Testament of the Bible, and Jesus visited this location according to the New Testament. In 691 CE, the Dome of the Rock, an Islamic shrine, was built on the site of former Jewish temples. The dome was built by Caliph uh, Abd al-Malik. It is the oldest surviving Islamic building and is constructed in the spot where Muslims believe Muhammad ascended to heaven. Christians will convert the dome of the rock into a church during the Crusades, which uh, does not make the Muslims very fucking happy. Uh, The dome was later recaptured by the Muslims and turned back into a shrine in 1187 CE. And sitting next to the dome is that silver-domed mosque, Al-Aqsa. The Western Wall is a surviving section of the Second Jewish Temple, located on the western side of Temple Mount, and therefore important not just to Judaism, but to Christianity and Islam, since they share the same Jewish history as part of the core of their religions. Finally, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre uh, was built in 335 CE, located in the Christian quarter of Jerusalem. This is the site where many Christians believe Jesus was crucified and where the resurrection occurred. 
Many people believe this is the holiest Christian site in the world. As you can see, all three religions have strong interests in Jerusalem. Controlling the city and the area around it where various events in the Torah, New Testament, and Quran supposedly took place, that would make a statement of power to the other two religions, right? Not controlling it. More than anything else, this is what the Crusaders were fighting for. They were fighting for the spiritual equivalent of the fucking Iron Throne from the Game of Thrones, right? Or the one ring, the ring to bind them all from Lord of the Rings. Whoever controlled the Holy Land, that control gave a a greater air of legitimacy to their religion. Now, before jumping into the timeline, let's discuss briefly what life was like for the average Crusader. It was fucking terrible. It was a fucking shit show. Now let's discuss it a little bit less uh, succinctly. Uh, People frequently died of anything but old age and natural causes. When the Crusades went down, they died constantly and in terrible ways. Again, up to 1.7 million people are thought to have died as a result of the Crusades and the leading cause of death thought by many to be starvation. What a terrible way to die. No one has any exact figures as to exactly how many starved, but there are account after account of Crusaders frequently feasting on the bodies of their enemies or dead fellow crusaders in siege after siege, just desperately trying to stay alive. Many others starved to death before they even made it to the Holy Land. Many crusaders had uh, no shoes, no weapons. They weren't knights. They, they were peasants. They were serfs, often trying to escape famines when they started their long, hard journey east. And the journey to Jerusalem for many in Western Europe took around three years. Three fucking years just to make it to the toughest battles of your life. Imagine walking for three years in like sandals, Best case. And then at various points along the way, you're maybe being given a sword and then just pushed into like a gladiator match. That basically is what life was like for many crusaders. That's why some historians say that only one in 20 survived the journey. And the few who, uh, you know, made it to the end had to fight even fucking harder. Uh, If a crusader was departing from Paris, they had to travel over 2,100 miles, the equivalent to the distance between New York City and Salt Lake City in the U.S. Most crusaders walked that entire distance, averaging about 12, 15 miles a day when they could travel, but they often had to stop to recuperate, wait out a storm, do some fighting, wait out the fucking winter, you know, et cetera. Travelers were often delayed by the need to stop to gather food, other supplies, uh, various sieges, you know, fighting with uh, opposing armies not even connected to the crusades oftentimes. Thousands and thousands of people abandoned the journey at some point, just deserted, just tried to make a life for themselves wherever they ended up. It was crazy. Uh, another danger was heat and dehydration. According to the World of the Crusades, a daily life encyclopedia, the heat was made worse by a medieval warm period lasting from 950 to 1250 CE, which coincided with the first through sixth crusades and part of the seventh crusade. During this time, there was more rain, more flooding, in addition to just, you know, generally warmer temperature, which isn't great when you're wearing fucking armor and stuff. Uh, medieval medicine, another danger of the Crusades, as we know, uh, most doctors back then fucking sucked. They didn't have uh, much scientific knowledge about the human body and used highly unsanitary or just torturous treatments. There are records of doctors at Crusader hospitals doing shit like amputating a soldier's entire leg because of a small infected wound. And then the soldier dies, of course, because they uh, didn't really know how to stop blood that well. And uh, a lot of people died when they came into contact with medieval doctors. Scurvy was maybe the uh, the biggest medical threat. Uh, many crusaders died of scurvy because meat was a major component of their diet and fruit and vegetables were not. Scurvy is caused by not having enough vitamin C in your diet for at least three months. Outside of the liver, most meat doesn't have enough vitamin C to fucking make a difference in our systems. Andrew Holt wrote in the World of the Crusades, a daily life encyclopedia, uh, that knights equated meat uh, eating with strength. Right? Fuck vegetables, fuck fruit, which I get. I'm a bigger fan of meat than fruit and vegetables, but you got to have a little bit. 
We don't have vitamins. Uh, scurvy is thought to have killed one-sixth of the entire French army during the Fifth Crusade. 20% of them just dying of scurvy. After several months of vitamin C deficiency, a range of scurvy systems can occur, including anemia, bone pain, easy bruising, swelling, gum disease, poor wound healing, depression, and more. Uh, parts of your body may swell, particularly your arms and legs towards the end. And if left untreated, you know, scurvy can lead to death from bleeding or infection, which sounds awful. Uh, dysentery, another big cause of death during the Crusades. McGill's pop, death by diarrhea, people blowing off their buttholes. Not literally, but close. Uh, dysentery often uh, contracted via contaminated drinking water. Uh, just like, you know, it was for the Oregon Trail travelers centuries later. And severe diarrhea can dehydrate someone to death. You can shit yourself to death. Uh, yet another danger during medieval times were all the strict and crazy laws and harsh punishments enforced by different rulers. Torture was commonplace back then, whether you were on the crusade or not, as were executions. Uh, Muslims and Jews uh, bore the brunt of both torture and torturous death during the crusades. The Jewish Virtual Library reported the Christian crusaders viewed Jewish people as the murderers of Christ. And some of them used the crusades as an opportunity to kill them without worry of going to hell, you know, since the Pope gave them the spiritual equivalent of a always get out of jail for free as long as you're a crusading cart. Life was terrible for the majority of crusaders, but also terrible at that time in Europe for just, you know, pretty much everybody. Just because you didn't take off for, for a treacherous crusade, that didn't mean you were safe and living the easy life. You might be killed by a rival lord who wants your land. You might be tortured by church officials for maybe being a heretic or just, you know, they just want to get rid of you. So they call you heretic. You might be an enslaved serf doomed to work a life of indentured servitude and possibly die, uh, die of scurvy at home. At least with the Crusades, like Pope Urban promised, you could die with the belief that you've been given a fast pass to heaven. And living with that hope for many in medieval Europe was probably a lot better than not living with it. Let's now cover a timeline of the major events of the Crusades. Right after our mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P slash timesuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. 
They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thanks for sticking around. And now it's really timeline time. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Emperor Alexius I Comnenus ruled the Byzantine Empire from April 1081 to August of 1118. The Byzantine Empire began over 750 years earlier in 330 CE when Roman Emperor Constantine I dedicated a new Rome where the ancient Greek colony of Byzantium, founded a millennium before in the 7th century BCE, was once located. Uh, Byzantium became Constantinople, named after Constantine, and then much later would become Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, it's located in a very strategic position in Eastern Europe on the European side of the Bosporus, 
The strait connecting the Black Sea to the Mediterranean, very important for uh, all the trading that they were doing primarily with ships back then. Byzantium served as a very important port, a very important like trade point between Europe and Asia. Uh, the western half of the Roman Empire had fallen in 476 CE, but the eastern half would survive for over a thousand additional years. The citizens of Constantinople and the eastern Roman Empire identified as both Romans and as Christians. The Byzantine Empire survived until 1453 when an Ottoman army destroyed the capital city of Constantinople during the reign of Emperor Constantine XI. Over a thousand years earlier, back in 325 CE, Emperor Constantine I established Christianity as Rome's official religion at the Council of Nicaea. He himself converted to Christianity in 312 CE. Nicaea is also located in modern-day Turkey. The Council of Nicaea concluded on August 25th, 325 CE with the establishment of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Interesting that it took that long to establish, right? Three full centuries following the death of Christ. That's a long time to establish something that is now at the core of Christian theology today. Longer than the entire history of the U.S. Amazing how much core Christian theology did not exist during the time of Christ. Uh, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity established the equality of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Uh, Arius, a third and fourth century Alexandrian priest, questioned the divinity of Christ leading up to the council because Christ was born from a human mother. Didn't like the Trinity. Uh, it was started off as an academic theological debate spread to numerous Christian congregations in the Roman Empire and caused a lot of division within the early church, threatened the stability of the early church. Uh, the council is formed. They end up determining uh, that uh, Arian, uh, that Arian belief that Christ is inferior to God is it's her heretical. And Arian leaders are banished from their churches for heresy. After this banishment, the Godhead is fucking in. And the beliefs of the second council, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the beliefs of the council and the decree that this uh, version of Christianity was the official religion of a powerful empire now set up future clashes with the members of any other religions, namely Islam, which wouldn't exist for another three centuries. Jumping back now to the time of Emperor Alexius I, the first crusade will last from 1095 to 1102. The purpose of the first crusade was to recapture the city of Jerusalem for Christianity. And this first crusade will work out overall pretty well for Christians. It'll be the the most successful crusade by quite a bit. But as you know, as the timeline continues, we'll see a, a shift from early Christian victories to heavy losses. In March of 1095, Emperor Alexius uh, I, Comnenus, appealed to Pope Urban II for aid against the Seljuk Turks who were encroaching on the Byzantine Empire. Let's talk a bit about Pope Urban, the Pope who kicked off the Crusades. Pretty important historical figure, probably the most important figure when it comes to this topic. Pope Urban II was born in 1042, Maybe 1035, sources differ, as Odo of Ligari. So, you know, urban, fucking cooler name than Odo. Born in a tiny village that is still a tiny village of just around 200 people in northeastern France. Odo was uh, born into a noble family. Makes me think of Frodo. Now I picture him in the fucking Shire, living with a bunch of hobbits. I don't think he was a hobbit, though. After finishing his studies, he became an archdeacon in the Diocese of Reims. Reims being the nearest city, only about 20 miles away. At this time, uh, Reims was the most important metropolis in France, or at least according to the Encyclopedia Britannica. A little under 200,000 people live there today, and people have been living there since uh, before the time of Caesar. An archdeacon was appointed by the bishop to assist with administration, which was a pretty powerful office in the Middle Ages. Odo likely held this uh, office from 1055 to 1067, then he became a monk. 1079, Odo travels all the way to Rome, almost 900 miles in the days before planes, trains, and automobiles. So in addition to being good at poping, pretty fucking good at walking. Uh, there, yeah, he soon made a cardinal and bishop of Ostia, a seaport for Rome by Pope Gregory VII. 
1084, Gregory VII sent uh, Odo as a papal legate to Germany. Dude took some long-ass trips in the days of yore. Had some fucking tight calves. Odo was a protege of Pope Gregory VII, and the two became pretty close. Odo supported Gregory's papacy during the Pope's struggle with Henry IV, the Holy Roman Emperor. The Holy Roman Emperor uh, was the head of state of the Holy Roman Empire. Makes sense. And Gregory and Henry had a power struggle that lasted for years that boiled down essentially to who had the bigger dick? Who was really in charge of the Holy Roman Empire, the king or the Pope? And this little power struggle, the outcome of it will have a you know drastic effect on the future of Europe. Right? This shit, I firmly believe at the end of the day is, is never really about God, right? It's about power, these struggles, always power. The Holy Roman Empire was the varying complex of lands in Western and Central Europe ruled by the Holy Roman Emperor, a title held first by Frankish and then by German kings for 10 centuries. Henry IV's conflict with the Holy Roman Empire became known as the Investiture Controversy. Uh, in summary, the Investiture Controversy lasted from 1076 to 1122 between the Salian dynasty of German monarchs and the papacy of Rome. The conflict was mostly focused on the appointment of bishops, priests, and monastic officials through the practice of lay investiture, which was when church officials were selected and installed by secular rulers rather than by the Pope. And the Pope didn't fucking like that. The Pope wanted to be in charge of the appointment of all the bishops, archbishops, fucking priests, you know, everything. He wanted to surround himself with his men, not with the king's men, he wanted to surround himself with men who aligned with his pursuits of power, not with the king's pursuits of power. Uh, this conflict was begun between Pope Gregory VII and Henry IV, but it will continue after their deaths. Pope Gregory VII dies in 1085. His successor, Blessed Victor III, only served as Pope from 1086 to September 16th, 1087, when he died. So he wasn't maybe all that blessed. Maybe not the best nickname. Victor III actually declined the office, was proclaimed Pope against his will. On May 24th, 1086, before his consecration uh, uh, consecration was completed, he was driven from Rome by supporters of Henry IV. People pissed that Henry didn't appoint him. Henry IV's supporters now set up an antipope, Clement III in 1084. An antipope is simply defined as a fuckhead. No, uh, simply defined as someone who opposes the legitimately elected pope. A puppet pope. A pee-pope. Uh, King Henry is the uh, one with his hand up the puppet's ass. Clement III was once an archbishop of Ravenna. His position was confirmed by Pope Alexander II, the Pope before Gregory. Pope Gregory then excommunicates Clement III. You're not allowed into heaven anymore, you puppet pope motherfucker. Uh, Clement III, uh, III was elected as antipope by a synod organized by Henry IV. The synod declared Gregory deposed. Right, this big power struggle. Once Clement III is enthroned, he uh, crowns Henry as emperor then he remains as the antipope during the pontificate of Victor III, not so blessed, and Urban III, and uh, Urban, Pope Urban II, uh, lives until 1100. And a synod is a local or provincial assembly of bishops and other church officials meeting to resolve questions of discipline or administration. Shifting focus back to Pope Victor, in March of 1087, he convened a synod at Capua, resumed his papal authority. He was consecrated in Rome on May 9th, but couldn't stay in the city because, uh, you know, fear for his life because of the support for Clement III. Things were a fucking mess for the church with his two Pope shit. Odo was elected Pope on March 12th, 1088. In the middle of this shit, he becomes Urban II. One of Urban's main focuses is reform, unification, and centralization of the church. He wants to make sure the church is more powerful than any Christian nation or empire, that the church was essentially a powerful empire into itself, uh, unto itself, you know, one that ruled above all Christian states and one that bound them together as nations, all following the same godly principles and all bending the knee to the Pope. 
As Pope, Urban II focuses on internal reform, just like Gregory, and is against uh, simony, the selling of church offices and clerical abuses. Also important for him to establish his authority, of course, over puppet Pope Clement III, and he can do that through the Crusades. Getting a variety of Christian states to fight essentially his war, that's a serious big dick power move. No king could have pulled that shit off. No fake fucking puppet Pope could, Clement, you fucking cocksucker, but he could, and he did. The big flex. By the time he died in 1099, the puppet Pope faded into obscurity. And when his successor was then named Pope and not Clement III, gig was officially up for the anti-Pope. This background information shows how the Crusades were definitely not just about religion. Right? It was about a power struggle. If Pope Urban II wanted to centralize the church during this conflict, if he wanted to make himself look more powerful than Clement III, initiating a massive holy war was the perfect fucking way to accomplish that. Very convenient timing. And then the fact that the Christians were successful in their main goal during the first crusade, well, that gave the church a lot of power. Although Urban would die before the end of the first crusade and not be able to experience that success personally. On November 25th, 1095, at the Council of Claremont, Pope Urban II calls for the first crusade to retake Jerusalem for Christians. Pope Urban convened the council for two main reasons, right? Letting anti-Pope Clement III and every secular ruler in Europe know that he had the biggest fucking dick on the continent, and also answering Emperor Alexius's uh, plea for help. Several hundred clerics and noblemen are present at the council. History.com uh, writes, Urban delivered a rousing speech, summoning rich and poor alike to stop their infighting and embark on a righteous war to help their fellow Christians in the East and take back Jerusalem. Urban denigrated the Muslims, exaggerating stories of their anti-Christian acts and promised absolution and remission of sins for all who died in the service of Christ. Right? Give the Pope, uh, excuse me, give the people a common enemy to unite them. Give them a boogeyman. Whether that boogeyman is actually a threat uh, or just believed to be a threat, doesn't matter. Nothing stops internal fighting more than the boogeyman. Pope Urban II said in his order to reclaim the Holy Land, Deus Volt, meaning God wills it. Manifest destiny, motherfuckers. Our sky daddy is the right daddy. And you can submit and pledge allegiance to our flag or you can fucking die, infidels. And this is the kind of shit that scares me the most about religion. How so many people are willing to die, willing to kill others all over a belief that their book that may or may not even be true is more important than some other book that may or may not be true. Uh, 60,000 to 100,000 people throughout Europe supported Urban's first crusade. And now in March of 1096, the People's Crusade departs for Constantinople, uh, also known as the Peasants' Crusade. This is a little precursor to the real crusade here. People's Crusade was a group of commoners and low-ranking knights, mostly common folk, uh, they left a bit earlier than the main kind of, you know, established crusader armies. They were led by a literal donkey riding preacher named Peter the Hermit, who was a bit of a fucking lunatic. This guy's very entertaining. Peter the Hermit was born in France in 1050, died back in France on July 8th, uh, 1115 after his adventures, died near the border with modern day Belgium. And one of the most important preachers of the first crusade. Author Thomas Madden describes Peter the Hermit in his book, The Concise History of the Crusades, as uh, riding from town to town on his donkey, this ragged holy man, mesmerized audiences with fiery and emotional sermons. Miracles followed Peter wherever he went. Demons were exercised, sicknesses healed, and confirmed sinners turned to God. Did he actually heal anyone or exercise any demons? I'm going to say based on other things I know about him, hard no. Uh, he did sanction and even have a hand in the butchering of a bunch of unarmed women and children. More on that in a bit. I was believed that Peter carried a letter literally sent to him from heaven 
<laughs> where God called on Christians to act against the Turks with a righteous vengeance. And man, that is a fucking ridiculous thing to believe. Seriously, think about how ludicrous the notion of God giving one guy an actual letter is. Why the fuck would a deity powerful beyond our comprehension ever send an actual literal letter? So what, God is up in heaven with a fucking quill and an inkwell making sure his calligraphy is all nice and tight and legible as he writes it out? And who delivers this letter? Some celestial courier, some postal service angel? Get the fuck out of here. If God wanted Peter Donkey Dude to lead a bloody charge of thousands uh, against the Muslims, why wouldn't God come address Peter's whole group directly? Better yet, why wouldn't God just kill him if God wants him dead? Why does God have to write a note to Donkey Dingle like some fucking junior high girl and ask his Donkey Dude to do his bidding for him? Thinking about people, you know, actually believing this shit is, is literally painful to me. It makes me want to scream when I think about how many people, some people to this day, actually believe that there's a God who will do things like write people letters. Saying he wants him to kill other people for not believing in him. Dear Peter, it's God. The God. You know it's up. Sorry to bother you. I know you have plenty to do between feeding your donkey and barely scraping an existence together in a world with no snack bars or air conditioning or proper medicine and stuff. But I have a small favor to ask. Could you please go kill a bunch of Muslims? I hate them. Pretty please with sugar on top? It really hurts me that they don't believe in me. It, it, it makes me super angry. And sad inside. I hate them even though I literally created them. <laughs> LOL. Anyways, thanks. God. P.S. You have a really cool donkey, and I think you're pretty cute. So anyway, Peter's dumb sermons gather a lot of support from thousands of crusaders, including a bunch of powerful lords. He preached to all ages, genders, and classes. He gathered crusaders from as far west as England. <laughs> this guy with the fucking God letter and the donkey, which says a lot about the state of the world at this time. And on the way to Constantinople, he and his fellow crusaders do some terrible shit. Uh, while Peter is traveling across France and Germany towards Constantinople, he and the men he led uh, decided to get in uh, some practice killing non-believers by targeting random Jewish people. Uh, they massacred Jewish people, thousands of them, primarily in five cities, and also killed some local Catholic bishops who tried to protect Jewish people. In the city of Mons, for example, Peter and some men with him stormed the palace of the bishop where Jewish people were taking refuge. And a description of the attack reads, they killed the women also. And with their sword pierced tender children of whatever age and sex. The Jews seeking that their Christian enemies were attacking them and their children and that they were sparing no age. Likewise, fell upon one another, brother, children, wives, and sisters. And thus they perished at each other's hands. Horrible to say, mothers cut the throats of nursing children with knives and stabbed others, preferring them to perish thus by their own hands rather than to be killed by the weapons of the uncircumcised. Yeah. That shit happened. Uh, and uh, pretty similar shit will happen with Hitler nearly a thousand years later. I wonder how many people would do uh, something like that today. Thoughts like that make me root for robotic advancements and daydream about hopefully someday, if we don't change our ways, robots will kill us all. Go Skynet, go! I have to remember that there have always been people who don't do shit like that though. Like the bishops who died trying to protect uh, people of another faith from being slaughtered. Gotta not focus on just the bad apples. Give me the right perspective, Nimrod. Okay, back. Uh, after making it to Constantinople, uh, although advised by Emperor Alexius to wait for the other armies before kicking some Muslim ass, Peter wasn't having it. His fucking donkey is ready to go. He's not, he wasn't Peter the patient. He was ready to, to ride his war ass straight into hell. And he and his army left early and crossed the Bosporus Strait on August 6th. 
Once they finally reached Turkish land, the People's Crusaders were not very effective against trained soldiers at all. A lot of infighting broke out. They divided amongst their respective cultural groups into, uh, you know, little gatherings of Germans, Italians, and the French. Uh, The French Crusaders launched a surprise raid on the suburbs of Nicaea and were actually successful, won their first skirmish with the Muslims. The Germans then tried to follow up, but the Turks were better prepared for them now and killed or captured pretty much all of them. Some Germans uh, who renounced Christianity and converted were sent east. The rest were executed. Yay, religion. Uh, The Turks then sent a fake message to the French from the Germans telling them about a bunch of riches they found, and the French fell for it. French forces set up for the treasure despite and, you know, know, being warned to not do so. And once they were in Turkish territory, they were slaughtered, most of them. A few were worried about the message being a trick because they did get some warnings, uh, didn't join the battle. One of the French who did not fight was Peter the donkey fucker. Uh, I think that was his nickname. It's hard to remember. He returned to Constantinople nearly solo for talks with Alexius. Uh, Madden writes, there he received the news of the elimination of his crusade. Of all the thousands who had followed the beloved preacher from France to Asia Minor, Peter himself was virtually the only survivor. There was nothing for him to do but enjoy the emperor's hospitality while awaiting the arrival of the main body of the crusade. So much for that fucking letter from God, huh? Dude just led a bunch of people to be slaughtered after helping kill an estimated 10,000 Jewish unarmed people just living their lives in Christian nations, just not wanting to worship the same version of God. Uh, One more thing about the People's Crusade before we move on. Some members of the People's Crusade (laughs) reportedly followed a a holy goose for a little while on the way to fight the Turks, like like an actual goose. The story goes that a woman's goose was following her around and pretty soon some people started to think that goose was special. (laughs) And they started to think the goose was divinely inspired. So now they started following the goose around. Uh, and, th- and then that was deemed blasphemous by a lot of other crusaders because it was generally agreed upon that animals didn't have souls, so they couldn't be divine. I'm sure they had a lot of intelligent arguments about this. No, John, it's not God's holy goose. God never mentioned a goose once in the letter he wrote to Peter. Come on. You're acting crazy. You're embarrassing yourself. What are you thinking following an actual goose? We need to keep our heads on straight. We need to think clearly and rationally. We got to just keep following the old wizard on the donkey with a handwritten note from God. Now let's go kill some Jewish kids like he asked us to help him do and leave this goose madness behind us. Uh, August 15th, 1096 marks the official start of the first crusade. Uh, Sorry, Peter. Again, historically, you're a precursor. Uh, During the first crusade, there were four primary armies from different regions of Western Europe participating. These armies were led by Raymond IV, Count of Toulouse. Born in 1041 or 1042 in Toulouse, France. Uh, According to Britannica, he was one of the most effective of the Western European rulers who joined the First Crusade. Raymond was a pious lay leader of the papacy's reform movement. Many historians believe that uh, before uh, Pope? Pope Urban II ever preached about the First Crusade, he probably secured assurance that Raymond would participate. Emperor Alexius disliked Raymond at first, but Raymond became the most faithful partisan of the emperor's territorial interest in the crusade, sometimes to his own disadvantage. Raymond assisted in the capture of Antioch from the Turks in 1098. Victory! Uh, Antioch was once a city in ancient Syria, currently the city of uh, Antakya in south-central Turkey near the Syrian border. Antioch was a very important city in the early days of Christianity, said to be the very first city where people lived who called themselves Christians. Uh, Raymond also helped organize the march on Jerusalem and took part in its later capture in 1099. There, he will refuse the crusader's crown to rule the state on behalf of the Pope, and it will be given to Godfrey of Bouillon, 
with whom he reportedly quarreled. Uh, speaking of Godfrey, Godfrey of Bouillon was the first Latin ruler in Palestine after the capture of Jerusalem. He ruled what was then named the Kingdom of Jerusalem. He accepted the position, as I mentioned, when Raymond declined it. He refused to be called king, took the title of defender of the Holy Sepulchre. Godfrey was a descendant of the legendary Charlemagne and was, quote, idolized in legend and songs as a perfect Christian knight, a peerless hero of the whole crusading epic. Godfrey arranged truces with Muslim cities of Ashkelon, uh, Caesarea, Acre. Uh, Ashkelon, or Ashkelon is located on the coastal plain of Palestine or southwestern Israel since uh, 1948, 12 miles north of Gaza. Uh, Caesarea uh, is an ancient port and administrative city that was part of Palestine, now on the Mediterranean coast of Israel. And Acre is a city in northwest Israel along the Mediterranean Sea. After Godfrey's death on July 18th, 1100, his brother Baldwin I will succeed him and become the crusade, uh, king. He'll actually take the title of king for the crusader state of Jerusalem. Uh, next dude, Hugh of Vermandois, uh, brother of King Philip I of France. He was the leader of a smaller fifth force that set out before the four main contingents sent out by Pope Urban in August of 1096. Vermandois' forces were unfortunately greatly reduced uh, by an unfortunate shipwreck while crossing the Adriatic Sea. Finally, uh, Bohemond of Otranto, a.k.a. Bohemond I, was one of the leaders of the First Crusade who helped conquer Antioch in 1098. Went on to be named a Prince of Antioch from 1098 to 1101, again from 1103 to 1104. Emperor Alexius had an agreement with the Crusaders where they were supposed to give conquered land to him, but as you can see, that didn't always happen. They took the ship for themselves and for the Pope. Uh, his birth name was actually Mark, but he was nicknamed after a mythical giant named Bohemond. He was described as tall and a strong knight. One contemporary called him a wonderful spectacle. Sounds like that contemporary might have had the hots for Bowman. Uh, Bowman was left as a de facto possessor of Antioch when the Crusaders left for Jerusalem in January of 1099. Following success in the First Crusade in 1105, he traveled to Italy, talked to the Pope. In 1106, he traveled through France and, quote, their babies were named for him. Crowds heard him denounce the perfidious Alexius and shrines received sacred relics from his hands. He was a majestic figure. Uh, that year, he married the daughter of Philip I of France. Bowman returned to do more crusading in the next couple of years with mixed success and then died in 1111, leaving the city of Antioch to his sons. Backing up now to the events these guys had a big hand in. In the fall of 1096, and the timeline will move a little faster once we get going. Just a lot of stuff we're still setting up. In the fall of 1096, leaders of the second wave of the first crusade arrived uh, staggered at Constantinople. Up to 30,000 soldiers gathered at the capital. Emperor Alexius made their leaders swear an oath of loyalty to him and recognize his authority over any land they regained that was once under Byzantine control as well as other territory. But as I pointed out, that wouldn't really happen. Uh, this was the Pope's crusade, not Alexius's. If he wanted shit done his way, well, he should have fucking kicked some Islamic ass by himself instead of calling for fucking help. In May of 1097, the Crusaders and their allies attacked Nicaea, modern-day Iznik, Turkey, which was the Seljuk Turk capital of Anatolia, a.k.a. Southwestern Asia, also called Asia Minor. Nicaea surrendered in June. It had fallen into Turkish hands 16 years earlier. On June 19th, 1097, the Turks under Kilish, or excuse me, Kilish, oh, this is a tough one, Kilish, Arslan, unsuccessfully attacked the Crusaders at Doraleum, an ancient city in Anatolia. Uh, Kilish Arslan was the Sultan of Rum, a state established and conquered Byzantine land by the Seljuk Turks. 
On July 1st, 1097, the Crusader army won against a Muslim army at Dorlaim. The Crusaders, led by Bowman, the magnificent beast, were almost destroyed before backup arrived to save them. October 21st, 1097, the Crusaders reached Antioch, which was under the rule of a Seljuk Turkish commander. February 6th, 1098, Baldwin of Bouillon uh, reaches the city of Edessa, currently Urfa, Turkey, ruled by Tauros, a Christian prince. As mentioned previously, Baldwin was the younger brother of Godfrey of Bouillon. Toros promises Baldwin to make him his heir in exchange for military aid. And Baldwin's like, nah, fuck that. How about, how about you just get off my throne and let me sit there? And that happens. These guys are kicking a lot of ass in foreign lands. Uh, March 9th, 1098, Prince Toros killed in a riot. Following day, March 10th, Baldwin just takes control of Edessa and starts the first Latin settlement in the east. The county of Edessa was one of four crusader-created states in the Levant. The county of Edessa lasted from 1098 to 1150. The principality of Antioch will last from 1098 to 1287. The county of Tripoli will last from 1102 to 1289. And finally, the kingdom of Jerusalem in its various forms will last from 1099 to 1291. The borders of these states, these crusader states will fluctuate a lot during their years of existence based on many battles. Uh, The Levant, that's weird. My brain doesn't want to say it. I've, I've listened to so many pronunciation guides of this word. I always want to say Levant. Everybody says uh, Levant or Levant. uh, Defined as the eastern Mediterranean coastal lands of Asia Minor and Phoenicia. Modern day Turkey, Syria, and Lebanon. In a wider sense, the term can be used to encompass the entire coastline from Greece to Egypt. The Levant is a part of the Fertile Crescent and was home to some of the most ancient Mediterranean trade centers. It is the homeland of the the Phoenician civilization. Uh, The Levant is also synonymous with the terms Latin East and Crusader states. Uh, June 3rd, 1098, the First Crusaders capture Antioch following an eight-month siege. During the siege of Antioch, a man named Peter Bartholomew, not Donkey Peter, New Peter, claimed that St. Andrew, the patron saint of Scotland, Greece, and Russia, appeared to him and showed him where to find the Holy Lance, the spear that is believed to have been used by the Romans to pierce Jesus' body at the crucifixion. Obviously, this Peter is so much more mentally stable than Peter the Hermit. This Peter didn't make some ridiculous claim that God wrote him a please go murder these people note. No, no, no. Uh, This Peter correctly claimed that St. Andrew, a.k.a. Andrew the Apostle, follower of Christ, showed up in a vision and told him where to find a magical weapon. Why wouldn't Jesus show up, you know, himself and, uh, you know, talk about where the lance was, you might wonder. Well, he didn't want to talk about it. It was a sore subject still. Uh, Count Raymond of Toulouse was the one who commanded that they search for the lance. Again, a lot of good thinking going on back here. So much reason and wisdom. A lot of sharp minds. Uh, June of 1098, Peter led the leaders of the First Crusade to the Cathedral of St. Peter in Antioch. He indicated the lance would be found there. On June 14th, after a day of digging, he jumps into the hole, picks up a little piece of iron. He's like, "Ah, I got it. This is the lance. And some people believe that was real, uh, and it was carried into the battle, and a lot of other people did not believe it was real and thought it was a bunch of bullshit. Uh, There are currently numerous legends about this supposed lance saying it's under St. Peter's in Rome or somewhere in France or on display at the Imperial Treasury in Vienna, etc. This Peter will later become a spiritual leader in Antioch. When a local bishop dies, he'll also continue having religious visions, which uh, will cause more and more people to eventually think he's batshit fucking crazy. Uh, One of his visions was about God ordering him to execute all sinful crusaders. And his fellow crusaders really weren't big fans of that vision in particular. Seemed like he was just, uh, you know, trying to get some type of spiritual permission to kill people he didn't care for. This guy had an interesting end. On Good Friday, in April of 1099, this Peter voluntarily submits to a trial by fire to prove he's a true man of God. He's not a con artist, 
who made up a bunch of shit about the Holy Lance. He was convinced God would not let him burn, that divine intervention would save him, and he was wrong. <laughs> I can't believe people would do this shit. April 8th, 1099, two large fires are built right next to each other. The flames reportedly reached 50 feet up into the air. After kneeling for a moment in prayer, this Peter just walks in between them. Uh, alleged holy lance in, in hand, he emerges on the other side, still walking, still living, but he's he's pretty burnt the fuck up. His supporters cheered. He's like, ah, he did it. He's alive. You know, he probably looked like Fire Marshal Bill or Freddy Krueger, but alive. It was a miracle. But then, you know, three days later, he, he dies because he was badly fucking burnt. So maybe he wasn't as close with God as he thought he was. <laughs> June 28, 1098, uh, the Crusaders defeat a large Muslim army that was sent to recapture Antioch. They decided to spend the summer in Edessa before continuing on. In mid-November 1098, the armies of Raymond, Count of Toulouse, and Robert of Flanders, Bob of Flanders, uh, arrive at the siege of Mayera now. Quick introduction to uh, Flanders Bob. Bob Flanders, Robert of Flanders. Uh, Robert I, a.k.a. Count of Flanders, he'll die October 13th, 1093. He led a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the late 1080s. On his return in 1090, he temporarily served in the army of Alexius I. The siege was successful, but it came at a cost. And that cost was about 20,000 lives. And a fair share of those who died were eaten. On December 11th, 1098, uh, Marat al-Numan fell to the crusaders where the siege took place. And the crusaders practiced cannibal cannibalism, eating the bodies of Muslims to survive. So they won the battle, but they didn't have enough food to stay alive after winning the battle. One chronicler wrote, some people said that constrained by the lack of food, they boiled pagan adults in cooking pots, impaled children on spits and devoured them grilled. Did that happen? Like that chronicler said, it feels a little dramatic. Why would they boil the adults, but grill the kids? Like, was it a size thing? Did they have a, a fucking kid-sized grill for some reason? And adult-sized cooking pots? Uh, another wrote, I shudder to tell that many of our people, harassed by the madness of excessive hunger, cut pieces from the buttocks of the Saracen, Saracens, already dead there, which they cooked, but when it was not yet roasted enough by the fire, they devoured it with savage mouth. Shit getting a little unholy in this holy quest. Uh, February and March of 1099, a rank-and-file force at Antioch under the command of Count Raymond of Toulouse continues on to Jerusalem now. On June 7th, 1099, the Crusader army arrived at the walls of Jerusalem, one step closer to completing the primary objective of the First Crusade. At this time, Jerusalem was occupied by the Egyptian Fatimids. The Fatimids were Shiite Muslims, were enemies of the Seljuks, who were Sunni Muslims. Shiites believed that Islam would be led by descendants of Muhammad, while Sunnis believed that the leader of Islam should be appointed by election and consensus. Uh, today, Sunnis uh, make up 84 to 90% of the world's Muslims. Uh, June 17th, 1099, a small fleet of Genoese and English sh uh, ships arrive at Jaffa to supply the first crusaders in Jerusalem with some weapons. Fuck yeah, bro. Get some swords. Uh, Jaffa, the southern and oldest port of Tel Aviv. It was an ancient port city. On July 8th, 1099, a procession of crusaders surround Jerusalem. On July 10th, uh, the first crusaders construct siege towers to assist in their attack on Jerusalem. And on July 15th, the first crusaders capture the city. Hooray! Uh, I thought about 3,000 crusaders died in the siege. It counts very wildly of how many Islamic soldiers and citizens died. They range from 3,000 to 70,000. Uh, Tancred, the nephew of Bohemond, had promised the residents of Jerusalem protection, but then he was like, JK, fuck you guys, 
And the Crusaders killed hundreds of men, women, and children, or thousands or tens of thousands. One chronicler described the massacre that occurred during the siege of Jerusalem thusly, some of our men, and this was the more merciful, cut off the heads of their enemies. Others tortured them longer by casting them into the flames. Piles of heads, hands and feet, feet, uh, covered the streets. I don't know why feet makes it like silly to me. There was piles of heads, hands and feet. So many piles of feet. Um, Some Jewish people who had helped defend the city were locked inside a synagogue and set on fire. Women, children, the elderly, also slaughtered. For the glory of Rome, for the glory of killer Christ. Uh, July 19th, 1099, Pope Urban II dies without hearing news of the capture and wanton slaughter of Jerusalem. He's either 63 or 64, depending on the source. Uh, July uh, 22nd, 1099, Godfrey of Bouillon is elected ruler of the new crusader settlement at Jerusalem. After the first crusaders achieved the goal of conquering Jerusalem, many of them left for home. In order to govern the conquered territories, the remaining crusaders established the four western settlements I mentioned earlier, the crusader states of Jerusalem, Edessa, Antioch, and Tripoli. The need for more soldiers to defend these crusader crusader states in the Middle East led to the creation of some military orders, such as the Knights Templar and Knights Hospitaller. On August 10th, 1099, a Muslim army sent to recapture Jerusalem is defeated at the Battle of Ashkelon now. September 1099, the crusader state of the kingdom of Jerusalem is officially created. Baldwin becomes the first true king of Jerusalem after Godfrey of Bouillon dies, July 18th, 1100. On November 15th, 1100, a new pope, Pope uh, Paschal II, preached for the crusade to continue. God wanted more fucking blood. And he threatened deserters and those with unfulfilled crusade vows with excommunication. Keep killing for killer Christ or burn in hell. I mean, that is basically what he said, what he decreed. On May 17th, 1101, Caesar, Caesarea. I think it's Caesarea. There we go. Caesarea, that ancient port city on the Mediterranean coast is captured by crusaders. On May 26th, 1101, the crusaders capture Acre, the coastal city in Israel. 1104, Muslim forces defeat the Franks at Heron in modern-day Turkey, which stops their movement east temporarily. In 1109, Tripoli falls to the Crusaders after 2,000 days of sieging. That's a long fucking time. Uh, unknown how many died on either side. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a lot. Uh, 1113, the Knights Hospitaller are born from the Crusades. They were uh, reorganized as a new religious order by Pope Paschal II. The Knights Hospitaller were formerly known as the Knights of the Order of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem. And that title was a bit lengthy, a bit of a mouthful, not very catchy or easy to remember. So they quickly became known as the Knights Hospitaller. The Knights Hospitaller were originally founded to provide aid and medical care to Christian pilgrims, but they eventually became a military order, warriors for killer Christ in a sense. The Knights acquired territory in Europe and would contribute to the Crusades in Iberia and in the Middle East. According to the World History Encyclopedia, the Knights still exist today in several modified forms, such as the Roman Catholic Sovereign Military Order of St. John, again, pretty lengthy title, and the Volunteer St. John's Ambulance Brigade. The Knights Hospitaller were likely first established pre-Crusades in 1080 at the Hospital of St. John in Muslim-controlled Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem, yeah, my gosh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. <laughs> my brain's freaking out also on that word. Uh, by a group of merchants from Amalfi, Italy. The order was dedicated to John the Almsgiver, a patriarch from the 7th century. He was later replaced by St. John the Baptist. Uh, the hospital was divided by gender and offered aid to pilgrims in the Holy Land. And Benedict, Benedictine monks ran the hospital. 
after the capture of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Wow. Uh, in the First Crusade, uh, the order became more militaristic. They were eventually granted independence from any local religious authorities by the church and given permission to do less tending to the sick and wounded and more making people wounded or, uh, or dead. So the slight change of focus. The much more infamous Order of the Knights Templar began in 1120. Uh, I did a two-parter about the Knights Templar back in the summer of 2018. If you really want to dive a lot deeper than I'll dive today. Uh, episode 92 and bonus episode 23, just uh, just a little summary right now. Knights Templar founded to protect travelers visiting the Holy Land and to carry out military operations. History.com describes them as a wealthy, powerful, and mysterious order that has fascinated historians and the public for centuries. Tales of the Knights Templar, their financial and banking acumen, their military prowess, and their work on behalf of Christianity during the Crusades still circulate throughout modern culture. Uh, well, uh, why did they form? In a word, demand. They fulfilled a need. Pilgrims from Europe following the capture of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, <laughs> that's going to mess with you in the rest of the episode now, of course, uh, were traveling from Western Europe to visit the Holy Land in numbers like they had never done before. And they kept running into the medieval equivalent of Wild West stagecoach bandits, right? Deb Nabbit. Many of them were robbed and or murdered during their journeys, and they didn't like that. So in 1118, a French knight named Hugh de Payen uh, created a military order with eight of his relatives and acquaintances. They called themselves the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Solomon. And that name sucked. Again, shitty, overly wordy, not catchy. So it didn't stick. And they soon became known as the Knights Templar. Way better name. Uh, supported by Baldwin II, ruler of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. God, why is it? Do uh, they established a base on the Temple Mount and promised to protect the Christian pilgrims from thieves and others looking to do them harm. The Catholic Church formally endorsed the group in 1129 and in 1139, another new pope, Pope Innocent II, issued a papal bull giving special rights to the Knights Templar. They were exempt from taxes, allowed to build oratories, and were only subject to the Pope's authority. And that made a lot of rulers real nervous, right? Of course it did. The Pope had warriors now who were essentially above the law. The Knights Templar soon established a prosperous network of banks and they gained a lot of financial power and influence. This banking system allowed pilgrims to deposit their assets at home, France, wherever, then later withdraw funds in the Holy Land without having to carry that money over there. The Templars became known not just for their banks, but also for being some badass warriors and for the rule of the Templars, which detailed their strict code of conduct and dress code. The Knights took oaths of poverty, chastity, and obedience, uh, celibacy, uh, many of these took oaths, uh, you know, these oaths very seriously. The Knights established chapters in Europe as the order grew. At one point, they had a fleet of ships and they straight up owned the Mediterranean island of Cyprus, which then served as the main bank and lending institution for European monarchs and nobles. Uh, they bought the island from Richard the Lionheart, King of England and a crusader himself. The Knights' role changed as time passed. More and more, they helped defend the crusader states and the Holy Land became known as highly skilled warriors. Uh, they built castles, won numerous battles against Islamic armies. The Knights were known for a fearless fighting style, truly thought of themselves as God's warriors, the Pope's Spartans, Sparta. But all throughout history, God's warriors, uh, you know, do eventually fall. And so did the Templars. When the Muslims started gaining more and more power towards the end of the Crusades, the Knights eventually had to relocate out of the Holy Land. And after the end of the Crusades in 1291, support for military campaigns in the Holy Land greatly decreased. Now, no longer needed in the same way, Secular and religious leaders, you know, criticized the Knights Templar for their money and influence. Uh, by 1303, the Knights uh, lost their last foothold in Muslim territory, set up a base in Paris, 
and then King Philip IV of France decided to bring him down. He owed him some money that he didn't want to pay back, and they were denying him further loans. So he decided to solve his debt and lending problem at the same time by framing and dismantling them and then just taking their shit. On October the 13th, 1307, numerous French Templars were arrested. Many of them were tortured until they made false confessions to things like heresy, homosexuality, financial corruption, devil worshiping, fraud, and literally spitting on the cross. But, you know, like, why the fuck would they do that? Well, they were evil. They got evil all of a sudden. The devil got into them. They were evil, devil-loving buttfuckers. They weren't, but that's how they were portrayed. The now infamous demon Baphomet comes from the framing of the Templars. No one had ever heard of this fucker prior to the early 14th century, and then accusations were made against the Templars that they worshipped this alleged demonic entity, and accusations like that were good enough to get a person burned at the stake. And that's what happened. Dozens of Templars were burned at the stake for shit they likely never ever did. The Grand Master of the Knights uh, himself executed in 1314. Pope Clement V, after being pressured by King Philip, completely dissolved the Knights Templar in 1312. Uh, Some believe that their property and assets were then given to the Knights Hospitallers. Much more likely that King Philip and King Edward II of England actually took all the money and assets and divided it amongst themselves. Uh, The modern Catholic Church has acknowledged that the persecution of the Knights was totally unjustified, and they claim the Pope was pressured to destroy the order by secular rulers. Probably true. And there have been so many conspiracy theories surrounding the Knights Templar uh, for so many years now. Some people believe the order is still around in secret. Illuminati! Uh, In the 1700s, groups like the infamous Freemasons revived some of the Knights' symbols, rituals, and traditions. And now some people think that the Freemasons are the Templars. You know, it freaks people out. People who think the Freemasons uh, secretly rule the world. I have actually met people who truly believe this. And every single one of them genuinely have seemed to me to be at least somewhat mentally ill. Uh, Some believe that the Knights Templar guarded the Shroud of Turin, a linen cloth believed to have been placed on Jesus's body before he was buried. Others believe they had uh, possessed and still possess magical religious artifacts like the Holy Grail, Ark of the Covenant, parts of the cross that Jesus was crucified on. And people believe these artifacts gave them magical otherworldly power. But did they? Because Muslim forces would eventually beat the shit out of them, knock them completely out of the Middle East. So uh, I doubt they possessed any crazy powers. Uh, Before I leave this little summary of the Knights Templar, let me share a list of some of their rules because I find some of these very entertaining. As the Knights Templar grew, so did their code of conduct, and they eventually had to follow a list of hundreds of rules, much more than the original 68 from the uh, 1129 draft of the rule of the Templars. The original documents no longer exist. We just have some translations. The following are some of the stranger rules and regulations the Knights had to follow. Uh, I love that for almost every one of these rules, you know that something happened that made whoever was in charge feel like they needed to add this rule to the list. (laughs) One rule was sharing bowls. You got to share bowls, right? The bowls are for sharing. I'm guessing this one was born when these dudes just kept getting into fights over who, you know, the uh, various bowl belonged to. Hey, what are you doing, Roland? That's my fucking bowl. You put your porridge in. No, no way, Peter. Look at that notch there. I put that there so everyone would know it's my bowl. And it just kept going back and forth and back and forth until someone was like, enough, enough of the bowl talk. New rule. Everyone shares all the bowls, right? No bowl belongs to anybody. Uh, another rule was only eating meat three times a week, excluding certain holidays. So there must've been a meat shortage or just, you know, too many dudes. Just fucking all you can eat buffet style, feasting on all the best meats. And those dudes ruined it for everybody. 
another rule, a, a brother on penance had to eat on the floor in front of everyone. That seems a bit much. That's pretty embarrassing. <laughs> this is one of my favorites. No pointed shoes or shoelaces. I like the no pointed shoes, right? That came from something. What is with all the pointed shoes around here? You can't throw a rock in this fortress without hitting a pair of pointed shoes. I swear to God, if I trip over one more pair of pointed shoes when I get up to go to the bathroom, uh, no embracing any women, including mothers and female family members. What happened there? Did they have some creepy long huggers, right? Smashing the tits of people's moms and aunts, you know, coming over to visit. Had to make a no hugging any tits rule. Uh, another rule, no shortening stirrup leathers, girths, sword belts, or breech girdles without permission, but the knights could adjust their buckles without permission. No idea where that came from. Uh, no bathing without permission. I don't know if somebody was hogging the tub. Uh, finally, this is my favorite. Uh, no talking about sexual experiences with women. <laughs> somebody clearly wouldn't shut the fuck up and they were riling up all the other knights. You know, who had all taken vows of celibacy. Someone's like, dude, dude. When I was a single sinner, like before all this shit, oh my God. One night at a brothel, literally, I swear, literally almost drowned in puss. And then like the commander was like, Godfrey, please stop with the sex talk. Dude, what's your favorite color nipple? I got to say, mine's pink. I love me a pink nipple. On some alabaster. Godfrey! You know, it's, and it's odd because I prefer a tan colored puss. One night in Acker, I had sex three times with this lady, pink nipples, brown puss. Did you even know that was a thing? That's it, Godfrey, shut the fuck up. Time for a new rule. Half the men in this temple wouldn't be able to stand up right now if we suddenly had to defend ourselves. Uh, July of 1124, done with the Templars now. Uh, the Franks seized Tyre, now on the coast of southern Lebanon, which allowed them to occupy the coast to Ashkelon. Crusaders still kicking ass. But someone's about to start changing all that. Uh, 1127, Imad al-Din Zengi became the ruler of Mosul. Zengi was an important Muslim leader during the Crusades. He was an Iraqi ruler, founder of the Zengid dynasty, and he led the first important counterattacks against the Crusader kingdoms. Zengi's father, the governor of Aleppo in present-day northern Syria, was killed by Crusaders in 1094, so he didn't have a lot of uh, love in his heart for Crusaders. Zengi then fled to Mosul, a city in northwestern Iraq. From there, he served the Seljuk Turks. And in 1127, the Seljuk Sultan appointed him as governor of Basra. During the rebellion in 1127, he supported the Sultan and was rewarded with the governorship of Mosul. In 1128, the Franks attempted to seize Damascus, but they fail. And then Zangi gains control of Aleppo. In 1137, King Folk of Jerusalem is captured, then released by Zangi. Full, uh, Folk the Younger became the king of Jerusalem when uh, Baldwin II died in 1131. He allied with the Byzantines against Zangi and helped Damascus keep Zangi out. And in 1139, Zangi sieged Damascus, still didn't take it down, but he kept getting close. 1140, both Damascus and Jerusalem ally against Zangi. Zangi's he's a real fucking problem. On December 24th, 1144, Muslim Seljuk Turks, again led uh, by Zangi, do capture Edessa. This event marks the end of the First Crusade and it led Christian authorities in the West to call for another crusade to take Edessa back and capture more Holy Land territory. So the fighting from one crusade, the aftermath leads to the Second Crusade. December 1st, 1145, another new Pope, Pope Eugene III. Pope Jean ah, called for the Second Crusade. Zengi, meanwhile, wouldn't get to enjoy his victory over Edessa for long. He was murdered in 1146, reportedly by a servant who had a grudge against him. 
Zengi's son, Nur al-Din, inherited Aleppo after his father's death. In September of 1146, Jocelyn II, Count of Edessa, attempts to retake Edessa but fails. And the city is sacked by Nur al-Din. From 1147 to 1148, some Germanic and Danish nobles lead campaigns against pagans in the Baltic area. So this, uh, we've got some little, uh, little bit of crusade side action going on now. Now that a policy has been set forth where Christian soldiers feel like they have carte blanche when it comes to any non-Christians, carnage in the world has greatly increased and not just always against the Muslims, but just anybody who doesn't follow the Pope. Throughout this timeline, uh, far too much to mention at all, in and outside of Europe, Jewish villages and neighborhoods are being destroyed uh, as are various pagan communities, uh, various other Christian you know, sects will be destroyed, women raped, children, men, elderly killed, all their property taken, and it all felt justified to the people doing it, right? God's will was being done. Uh, the official second crusade begins in 1147, last to 1149. It's a little short one. Uh, this time with the primary purpose, again, to recapture Edessa for Christians, and the second crusade is not successful. Second Crusade is led by King Louis of uh, VII of France and King Conrad III of Germany. From September to October 1147, the armies of the Second Crusade arrive in Constantinople. On October 25th, 1147, Muslim Seljuk Turks attack an army led by Conrad at Doraleum. And this time around, Turkish forces win. In December of 1147, an army led by Louis VII uh, defeats a Seljuk army in Asia Minor. Right, Crusade victory. But then on January 7th, 1148, Louis's uh, army, Louis, is defeated by the Seljuks while crossing the Camdus Mountains. From July 24th through July 28th, the Second Crusaders uh, participate in the siege of Damascus, but ultimately fail. In 1148, Crusaders under Conrad of Germany and Louis uh, VII besieged Damascus with an army of 50,000 men, largest Crusader force yet, but they are forced to give up when Nur al-Din arrives at the uh, request of Damascus with an even bigger force. The defeat of the Crusaders at Damascus marks the end of the Second Crusade. But the Crusades, of course, are a long way from over. July 29th, 1149, Nur al-Din captures Antioch, which had been held by Crusaders since 1098. Another Crusader loss. And then Nur al-Din takes Damascus. In 1154, this move unifies the parts of Syria that were Muslim. From 1163 to 1169, Nur al-Din's general, Shirka, fights for control of Egypt. In 1169, Shirka succeeds in gaining control of Egypt takes on the title of vizier, but dies within two months. He's succeeded by future sultan Saladin, his nephew. Saladin, he's a bad motherfucker. And the crusaders in Cairo are forced to flee from Saladin. Saladin was a Muslim sultan of Egypt and Syria who was a prominent historical figure during the crusades. He was most known for the defeat of the crusaders in the battle of Hanin, or excuse me, Hattin, uh, where he slaughtered most members of an army up to 30,000 strong. And then he also, he captured Jerusalem. Jerusalem! Wow. In 1187, uh, Saladin was celebrated for his political and mystery uh, military skills. Brains all over the place now. Jerusalem is throwing me off, as well as his generosity. Uh, Saladin was born in Tikrit, Iraq in 1137 or 1138. Family was Kurdish, father and uncle, military leaders under Zangi. Saladin grew up in Damascus, rose up to the military ranks. He joined his uncle's army, which served Zangi's son, Nur al-Din, on an expedition to Egypt. Saladin chosen to succeed his uncle in 1169 and command Nur al-Din's forces, appointed vizier of the Fatimid Caliphate, which ruled over Egypt. When the last Fatimid Caliph uh, died in 1171, Saladin became governor of Egypt and then reestablished a Sunni Islamic regime and strengthened Egypt as a base of Sunni power. In 1170, Nur al-Din gained control of Mosul after his brother's death. 
1171, Saladin declared the Fatimid control of Egypt was over and he became ruler. And this marks the start of the uh, Ayyubid dynasty. This increased tensions between Nur al-Din and himself, of course, even during the Crusades, right? Muslims still fighting other Muslims, Christians still fighting other Christians. From 1174 to 1193, Egypt is ruled by Saladin, the Sultan of Egypt and Syria. Nur al-Din dies in 1174. Saladin launches a campaign to take control of his lands and establish his regime as a world power capable of challenging all four crusader states. And that's when he takes on the title of Sultan of Egypt. Saladin wants to unite Syria, northern Mesopotamia, Palestine, and Egypt. And he will do so by 1186 through both force and diplomacy. He gains Muslim support by declaring himself leader of a holy war, defending Islam against the crusading Christians. In 1183, Saladin seizes Aleppo, which reunites Egypt and Syria. In 1185, Saladin officially contains, uh, gains control of Egypt, Damascus, Aleppo, and Mosul. In 1187, Saladin starts a major campaign against the kingdom of Jerusalem. Nailed it! And that was when his army uh, destroyed the Christians in the Battle of Hattin from July 3rd to the 4th in 1187. Uh, Saladin fought this battle against Guy of Lusan, king of Jerusalem. Saladin uh, lured Guy's army away from a water source, then set the grass on fire before shooting the crusaders with arrows. The crusaders grew extremely dehydrated to the point that eventually they were just unable to fight. Following this battle, Saladin's forces won more victories across the kingdom of Jerusalem. Uh, and then on October 2nd, 1187, the city of Jerusalem surrenders to Saladin's army. This is perhaps one of the most, if not the most, devastating defeats for the Christians. They lost the crown jewel of the Holy Land, and they won't really get it back. Uh, Saladin took most of the land controlled by the Franks, not for long. I'll explain later. Uh, he took most of the land controlled by the Franks, including the cities of Acre, uh, Caesarea, uh, Nazareth, Jaffa, leaving them with only Tyre, Tripoli, and Antioch. Most of the Christian survivors fled to Tyre after their defeats elsewhere. Saladin planned to kill all the Christians in Jerusalem as revenge for that 1099 massacre in Jerusalem, but he ends up showing some mercy by letting them buy their freedom. This loss of Jerusalem will lead to the Third Crusade. In October of 1187, another new pope, Pope Gregory VI, calls for the Third Crusade to recapture Jerusalem. Before this crusade gets going in July of 1188, Saladin's armies besiege the Knights Hospitaller Castle of Crac de uh, Chevalet, but then withdrew to meet the soldiers of the Third Crusade. And I'm so glad they did withdraw because now that castle is still there. And it looks fucking incredible. One of the best preserved medieval castles in the world. The Third Crusade will last from 1189 to 1192. The Third Crusaders will manage to recapture some cities, but not Jerusalem. God explained, uh, you know, why. Uh, they failed in a nifty letter he wrote to a little-known crusader you've never heard of, Sir Randy of Dunkelshire. And it is Shire! Not sure. Dear Randy, this is God. The real one, no cap. Sorry that so many of your crusaders got slaughtered, but Sir Godfrey, the Knights Templar guy, look. He was supposed to stop talking about sex with women, but he hasn't done that, and I'm, I'm hell-pissed. I hate the Muslims, I hate the Jews. You, you know that. You know that! And I love it when you guys kill them. But I hate puss more. I hate puss so much more. And I won't let guys who just won't shut up about pink nipples and brown puss win a holy war. I can't. I can't do that. Thanks, God. P.S. Don't be too sad. There's going to be way more crusades so you can still be my chosen warriors and stuff later, okay? Uh, the third crusade was led by Richard I of England, a.k.a. Richin, Richin? Richard the Lionheart. 
Uh, Philip II of France and the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick I, a.k.a. Frederick Barbarossa. Barbarossa would challenge papal authority and sought to establish German predominance in Western Europe. But he would also fight for the Pope in the Third Crusade. After having an archbishop kneel to him, Barbarossa would lead anywhere from 12,000 to over 100,000 men. Sources differ wildly about what that fucker got up to. Uh, Richard I of England earned his nickname Richard the Lionheart for his actions during the Crusades. Uh, legendarily brave, the star of the Third Crusade, the Brad Pitt, the fucking Denzel Washington of the Third Crusade. Uh, the Siege of Acre lasted from August 1189 to July 1191. The Crusaders will win but suffer heavy losses. About 20,000 will die. On June 10th, 1190, Frederick uh, I, Barbarossa, Holy Roman Emperor, drowns in a river on his way to the Middle East. Bummer. Seemed like a pretty decent dude, comparatively. Uh, he was the only Christian leader thus far to pass laws punishable by death forbidding Christians. And he was a Christian himself from harming Jews in his kingdom. Uh, May of 1191, Richard the Lionheart captures Cyprus from a Byzantine prince. In June, Crusader armies under Philip II of France and Richard I of England arrive at the Siege of Acre. On July 12th, 1191, Richard captures Acre. During the siege, he reportedly used 13 ships loaded with hives of bees to cause his enemies to retreat. And that probably didn't happen, but it's a cool story. All right, beat your asses with some bees, motherfucker. Uh, August 20th, 1191, Richard orders the execution of 2,500 Muslim prisoners of the siege. And I don't want to go further without acknowledging that, yes, another dick in a suck. Uh, this is not a tall tale. This execution, that's a fuckload of POWs he executed. September 7th, 1191, Dick I's army defeats Saladin's army at Arsuf in present-day Israel. This was the only true battle as opposed to a siege of the Third Crusade. Richard led about uh, 1,200 men against 25,000 of Saladin's warriors. It's thought that Dickard lost about 700 men to Saladin's 7,000. And Dickard the Lionheart, uh, one hell of a battlefield tactician. January of 1192, uh, Richard I's army arrives within sight of Jerusalem, but decides not to attack due to a fear of counterattack by Saladin's larger forces. In July of 1192, Saladin's armies take Jaffa. These guys duking it out. In 1192, August of 1192, Richard I's army retakes Jaffa back from Saladin, right? Fucking duking it out, these two monsters of the battlefield. After recapturing the city of Jaffa, Richard I reestablishes Christian control over the region and approaches Jerusalem now but refuses to siege the city. With so many important religious sites, he won't risk destroying it and as a smart guy, knows he doesn't have enough firepower to take it. Instead, on September 2nd, 1192, Richard I and Saladin sign a treaty that ends the fighting. The treaty reestablishes the kingdom of Jerusalem, but that kingdom will not include the city of Jerusalem in it. Interesting compromise. And that will mark the end of the Third Crusade. Although those two men never actually met, Richard I and Saladin were said to have greatly respected one another. In 1192, Richard was captured by Leopold of Austria on his way back to England. Leopold accused him of being involved in the murder of a cousin. Uh, Richard then released in 1194 once a sufficient ransom is raised. That's got to suck, right? Dude doesn't get captured by Muslim forces after kicking so much ass, but then does get captured by some fellow Christians. Uh, after getting out, he leaves crusading behind and goes to fight France. He will die seven years later in 1199 at the age of 41 after getting shot by a crossbow in the shoulder in battle and then the wound turns gangrenous. Uh, he had the kid who shot him found, brought to him. And then after that kid said that he shot Richard because Richard had killed his dad and two of his brothers, Richard let him go. Even gave him a hundred shillings before sending him on his way. 
Uh, Richard the Lionheart would be a great historical figure to examine someday in an episode. But back to today's topic. March 4th, 1193, Richard's great crusade's rival, Sultan uh, Saladin, dies in his gardens in Damascus. He was in his mid-50s. Saladin's coalition of states separates after his death, and his descendants will rule in Egypt and Syria. After several years of civil war, Saladin's brother, Al-Adil, takes control. Meanwhile, in Europe, Holy Roman Emperor Henry VI leads a German crusade now from 1197 to 1198. And this is a bonus crusade of sorts, not one of the official ones. Henry VI was son of Frederick I, Barbarossa, took over the empire when his dad left to participate in the crusades. Uh, His crusade won't last long because he dies of malaria, September 28th, 1197. Uh, Before that, in September of that year, a crusade army of his does manage to capture Beirut. Then on November 28th, 1197, another crusader army begins the siege of Tehran. But then on February 2nd, 1198, the crusaders abandon their siege when they hear about the death of Henry VI. Took a long time for news to travel back then. Uh, Many months in this case. May of 1198, the Order of the Teutonic Knights is officially sanctioned by Pope Innocent III. The Teutonic Knights were founded to help recapture Jerusalem during the, uh, Jerusalem, oh my gosh, Jerusalem during the Third Crusade. My lips are getting tired from all these difficult pronunciations. Uh, But when this ultimately failed, they established a hospital during the siege instead. Now the Pope had granted them the status of an independent military order, The Knights shift their focus from the Middle East to converting Christians and also taking land by force from other Christians in Central and Eastern Europe, starting in Transylvania. So weird times. The Teutonic Knights had their own kingdom in parts of Poland and Prussia for over two centuries going forward. They they didn't do shit in the Holy Land, but they did shake up shit in Europe. Uh, Not sure anyone saw that coming. In August of 1198, Pope Innocent III calls for the Fourth Crusade in another attempt to recapture Jerusalem, from Muslims, uh, they won't come close to doing that. They won't come within a thousand miles of Jerusalem uh, this time. I'm glad that the word I'm, uh, word I'm having trouble saying is in this text about a thousand fucking times. Uh, the fourth crusade lasted from 1202 to 1204. Instead of recapturing J-Town, there we go. Most of the focus ended up being uh, attacking former allies in Constantinople. The Pope had called for this new crusade four years before it started. It was delayed due to power struggles in both Western Europe and the Byzantine Empire. Western European rulers weren't a fan of Emperor Alexius III running the Byzantine Empire. They favored his nephew, Alexius IV. Uh, Infighting is dooming his crusading ambitions. In October of 1202, the Fourth Crusade fleet leaves Venice. On November 24th, 1202, the Fourth Crusade armies capture Zara, a Christian city on the Dalmatian coast, present-day Croatia. Zara was taken from the King of Hungary, also a crusader, so they're just taking things from other crusaders now. Uh, June 24th, 1203, the fourth crusaders, uh, they arrive in Constantinople. On July 17th, they capture the city, put Alexius IV on the throne. Uh, Alexius now attempts to submit the Byzantine church to Rome, but faces internal resistance and is killed in a palace coup in early 1204. Uh, In late January 1204, a dude with almost the same name, Alexios, leader of the Byzantine coup, seizes the throne. That's not confusing. Alexios, fucking pulls off a coup against Alexius. Uh, and now the Crusaders declare war on Constantinople again. On April 12, 1204, the fourth Crusaders sack Constantinople and now they carve up the Byzantine Empire for themselves. So not really a crusade. Uh, Christians fighting other Christians here and not fighting in the Holy Land. Many refugees fled to uh, Nicaea where a Byzantine government in exile is established. Then the Byzantine government will take back Constantinople in 1261. Just so much Game of Thrones style in fighting. The last crusades take place from 1208 
1271. According to History.com, the final crusades were aimed not so much to topple Muslim forces in the Holy Land, but to combat any and all groups seen as enemies of the Christian faith. The so-called Albigensian Crusade lasts from 1208 to 1229 and is aimed to eliminate Cather sects of Christianity in France. So this crusade is all about going after other Christians. Uh, and again, not really a crusade like the others. Uh, during these uh, crusades, Christians mainly targeted other Christians who did not bend the knee to the Pope and the Catholic Church. Catholics in the North declare war on the Cathars in the South of France. Uh, Cathars believed that Jesus was an angel and that his death was illusory. And thousands of them were killed and burned alive for believing that. One of the more bizarre events in this timeline was the Children's Crusade of 1212. Historians don't consider this an actual crusade, uh, and many question if children actually participated in it. Author and crusade historian Thomas Madden writes, the Children's Crusade was not an army of, chil- of children, and it was not a crusade. Indeed, it was not even one thing, but a blanket term used to describe a variety of popular uprisings and processions. And mainly it was two, uh, the stories, uh, according to the stories. The first was about this kid, Nicholas. Uh, a kid from Cologne, leader of the movement in the Rhineland. He was on a mission to travel to Jerusalem. How did I get that right? Uh, And take the city back from Muslim control. Sure, a whole bunch of massive European armies, you know, couldn't get the job done, but you know, he's going to knock it out himself. He felt God wanted him to. Uh, Nicholas and his followers go to different towns, gather support from other children, women and the elderly, the poor, clergy members. They receive food, gifts, money, support. They're considered heroes. Uh, By July of 1212, the group is crossing the Alps into Italy. People across Europe are inspired by Nicholas and his followers, like another kid named Stephen. Uh, In a small French town near uh, Vendôme, a 12-year-old shepherd boy named Stephen had a vision where Jesus, dressed as a pilgrim, asked him for bread. When Stephen gave him the bread, (laughs) Jesus gave him a letter meant for the king of France. So for fuck's sake, he's here we go with the letters again. Uh, Stephen and some other shepherds now begin traveling to France. They're soon joined by other children, clergy members, and the poor. Stephen and his followers eventually reach Paris and give some sort of letter to Philip Augustus. The contents of the letter are unknown, but it probably urged the king to participate in another crusade, but he would not do that. Uh, Meanwhile, other kid, Nicholas's group, they go to Genoa, Italy, August 25th. Uh, Nicholas tells his followers that the sea between Europe and the Middle East, the whole Mediterranean, is going to part for them, just like the Red Sea did in the Bible. And they were just going to fucking walk to Jerusalem. More geniuses, more geniuses heading to the Middle East on a suicide mission. Uh, Well, that doesn't happen. Uh, About half died even before making it to uh, to Genoa. Those who did make it, pretty bummed out when he doesn't, you know, part the Mediterranean. Uh, Many of them just uh, head home now. Few don't. (laughs) Nicholas himself tries to head home, uh, dies on the way back home. Apparently nobody in this group ever made it to the Holy Land. So some crusade. Uh, 1215 now, Pope Innocent III calls for the Fifth Crusade. He'll die on July 16th, 2000, or 1216 before it begins. His successor, Pope uh, Honorius III, continues planning this next crusade. The Fifth Crusade will last from 1217 to 1221. The purpose of this one was to attack Muslim cities in North Africa and Egypt. Uh, and this crusade, again, generally unsuccessful. In May of 1218, the Fifth Crusader army uh, arrives in Egypt, from June 1218 to November of 1219, uh, Domitia, Egypt is attacked and conquered after a siege. During the siege, the soldiers, though, suffer from severe scurvy. Uh, the crusaders were, quote, seized with violent pains in their feet and ankles. Their gums became swollen, their teeth loose and useless, while their hips and shin bones first turned black and putrefied. Sounds hellish. 
Uh, Crusaders attack Egypt by land and sea. In the end, it was all for nothing. By September of 1221, they are forced to surrender by Saladin's nephew, Sultan al-Malik Kamil. The Balter Crusades then take place from 1211 to 1225, meant to subdue pagans now in uh, Transylvania. From 1228 to 1229, Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II forms the Sixth Crusade. This time, diplomacy will be used to gain back J-Town. Uh, September 7th, 1228, uh, Frederick II arrives in the Levant. February 12th, uh, 1229, Frederick II and Al-Kamil sign a treaty, the Treaty of Jaffa, agreeing to give Jerusalem to the Christians in exchange for compensations a bit too complicated and frankly boring to get into here. Also, there's a lot of disagreement over exactly who got what. Many scholars seem to think that Al-Kamil just took a bad deal because he was not a great ruler and just didn't care that much about Jerusalem. Uh, the deal ultimately didn't really matter. The treaty expires 10 years later and the Muslims regain control of J-Town. Uh, December of 1244, Louis IX, King of France, vows to embark on a crusade because why the fuck not? Everyone wants to be the guy that crusades the best. Put their name at the top of the history books, do what the others could not. King Louis IX will lead the Seventh Crusade to the Holy Land from 1248 to 1250 in that same time frame, from 1245 to 1249. Al-Salih, Sultan of Egypt and Syria, rules the next generation of the Ayyubid dynasty. In 1247, Al-Salih captures Ashkelon Ashkelon from the Franks from 1248 to 1254. Uh, Louis IX attacks Muslim cities in North Africa and Egypt and is unsuccessful. 1248 to 1250 also marks the end of the Ayyubid dynasty. A new dynasty called the Mamluks emerges. The Mamluks were descended from former slaves of the Islamic empire. On August 25th, 1248, the doomed 7th Crusaders army now sails for Egypt, leaving from Southern France. It's almost over, but these idiots just not quite ready to give up. June of 1249, the 7th Crusaders army lands in Egypt. Then that same month, they capture the city of uh, Demetia, then have to deal with uh, some serious shit. Literal shit. So fucking much. So much showbiz. A peanut butter. Uh, I did not think I'd be diving back into uh, poop filth the week after R. Kelly. I thought we'd be safe, but no. Uh, Louis and his men suffer from a massive outbreak of dysentery uh, during the Seventh Crusade. According to the book, The Crusader World, the lower part of Louis's britches were literally cut away so he didn't have to continue taking his pants off because he was shitting that much. And all that shitting led to scurvy. <laughs> Severe malnutrition, lots of scurvy, lots of teeth falling out and whatnot, just great times. November 20th, 1249, the French king's shitty, loose-toothed, weakened scurvy army barely marches from Demetia or uh, Demetia towards Cairo, and they don't make it too far. After marching a little over 30 miles on April 5th, 1250, the Crusaders' army is defeated at Manzora. Uh, Louis, uh, Louis IX is captured. Louis will be released on May 6th, 1250 for a bunch of ransom and then has to give back the territory of uh, Demetia. So the Seventh Crusade is over and it was all for nothing. They accomplished fucking nothing. Uh, less than a decade later, some new and real scary people, the Mongols, make it to the Middle East. February of 1258, the Mongols under uh, Hulagu, Genghis Khan's grandson, take Baghdad, kill the last Abbasid Caliph, and massacre most of the population. This is insane. Somewhere between 250,000, according to varying sources, between 250,000 and 2 million people are slaughtered by the Mongols just in Baghdad. Unfucking real In one siege, they may have killed more people than in all the crusade battles combined. Uh, then in January of 1260, Mongols under Hulagu take Aleppo from Muslim forces. March 1st, 1260, they take Damascus. They're a wee bit stronger than any of the crusading armies. 
But then on September 3rd, 1260, the Mamluks under the leader uh, Kutuz, they do defeat the Mongols at the Battle of Anjalut, uh, on July 25th, 1261, the Byzantines retake Constantinople. Three years later, May 18th, 1268, Babers seizes Antioch and Jaffa. 1270, the Eighth Crusade, shadow of the former Crusades, is formed to attack Muslim cities in North Africa. Not even trying to fuck with the Middle East now. This crusade, also led by French King uh, Louis IX, who led the last crusade, and is also unsuccessful. The Eighth Crusade initially came as a response to the seizure of Antioch and Jaffa, but then the mission is redirected to Tunis when they realize we don't have a fucking chance of taking those cities right now. July of 1270, the Eighth Crusader army lands at Tunis in North Africa, and then on August 25th, Louis IX dies of scurvy. He didn't learn his fucking scurvy lesson in the last crusade. Uh, the Eighth Crusade is abandoned after Louis's death, or Louis' death. The crazy shit is almost over now. Despite of all, all these continual failures, Edward I of England begins another expedition in 1271, often grouped in with the Eighth Crusade, sometimes called the Ninth Crusade. His quest was, I bet you can guess, not successful and was considered the last significant crusade. 20 years later, May 18th, 1291, Acker, the last Christian stronghold in the Middle East, falls to the Mamluks. A small delegation of Knights Templars would fight to the fucking bitter end dish out heavy losses. I talked about this in depth in the Knights Templar two-parter. Uh, they just didn't have the numbers to beat the Mamluks. Most historians believe this event marks the true end of the Crusades. After the fall of Acre, other Crusader states, including the Kingdom of Jerusalem, uh, were absorbed into the Mamluks Sultanate. Very minor Crusades did continue after 1291, mostly military campaigns meant to push Muslims out of conquered territory or campaigns to conquer pagan regions. Uh, more people died. Very little was accomplished. And that will take us out of this Crusader timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Despite mostly failed attempts at conquest, the Crusades did leave a massive local and global impact. And before I talk about that, one more sponsor. Sorry, but uh, I think you might like this one. Coming this summer. From director Michael Bay and New Line Cinema, the greatest action blockbuster sequel in the history of all film. Opening in theaters on July 4th, worldwide, Killer Christ 2, The Final Crusade, with Nicolas Cage returning as the most bloodthirsty savior the world has ever known. All right, listen up. Remember when I said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy? Well, I misspoke. I meant to say, blessed are the bloodthirsty, for they will burn the infidels, and that's what gets my dick on. Keanu Reeves returns as Satan. Whoa, I like you, Jesus. You remind me of, uh, of me. <laughs> Let's burn everybody together, gnarly. Morgan Freeman stars as Muhammad. Jesus, Satan. Not sure what's going on here, but uh, my brothers aren't going to lay down and just take what you're laying down, you hear? We're going to go full jihad against you crazy motherfuckers. The final crusade is here. God's done writing letters. Yeah, no more letters, Dad. Pen's not mightier than the sword. 
Can't remember ever cutting an infidel's head off with one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, dude. Watch the last movie that matters this summer. Don't miss Killer Christ 2, The Final Crusade. Opening everywhere July 4th. Opening in select theaters in J-Town on July 3rd. Huh, sounds pretty good. I, I thought the entire world was destroyed in the first Killer Christ movie, though. I've, it's going to be interesting to see how the writers were able to kind of work around that for the sequel. Uh, anyway, I think I was talking about the Crusades leaving a massive local and global impact. The Crusades led to the use of religious historical precedent to justify Western colonialism and war. Muslims viewed the Crusades as a bloody and immoral war because of the massacre of Muslim and Jewish people. The Crusades increased xenophobia and intolerance between Christians and other religious groups. Some Muslim people today call the Western involvement in the Middle East a crusade. According to historian and Crusades expert T. Ashbridge, excuse me, the precise role of the Crusades remains debatable. Any attempt to pinpoint the effect of this movement is fraught with difficulty because it demands the tracing and isolation of one single thread within the weave of history and the hypothetical reconstruction of the world where that strand to be removed, were that strand to be removed. Some impacts are relatively clear, but many observations must perforce be confined to broad generalizations. Well, the following are some of the impacts of the Crusades that we can point to with certainty. Uh, the Crusades increased the presence of Christians in the Levant during the Middle Ages. The Crusades also led to the development of various religious military orders, such as the Knights Templar. The Crusades led to the polarization of the East and West due to religious differences. One of the biggest impacts of the Crusades, probably the biggest, was that they increased the role and power of the Pope in the Catholic Church tremendously. This especially applied to the successful First Crusade. The papacy and the church gained power over the Holy Roman emperors or secular leaders because of the idea that the Pope directed the affairs of the entire Christian world. The boundaries of the Pope's empire were not bound by the borders of a single state, but by the borders of all Christian states. The church became especially popular at the time of the Crusades, largely because of Pope Urban's promise that the Crusaders would be forgiven from their sins, right? Free ticket to heaven. What a crazy thing to promise. Right, something with no scriptural basis, by the way, just some crazy shit the Pope said to pull off a big power play and worked. However, as the Crusades continued one after another with less and less success overall, the prestige of the church did eventually decline. If the church couldn't hang on to the Holy Land, how godly were they? Another popular practice during the Crusades that benefited the church in the short run that I haven't mentioned yet was the purchasing of indulgences. If one was not able to participate in the Crusades directly, they could still receive spiritual benefits, a.k.a. salvation, by financially supporting the Crusades. This idea was extended by the Catholic Church to create a whole system of paid indulgences, a situation which later will backfire on the Catholic Church tremendously when it directly leads to Martin Luther's Protestant Reformation in the 16th century CE. But before that happened, buying deals with God through the Catholic Church made the church a lot of money. Culturally, the Crusades increased the power of royal houses in Europe for a time, led to a stronger collective cultural identity. Some surviving royals increased their power thanks to uh, so many other crusading nobles dying while fighting. Overall, though, the power of the European nobility would weaken by the end of the Crusades. So many serfs left to go fight, the feudal system that made the nobles rich started to decline. And when more and more nobles lost their land due to expenses incurred thanks to fruitless Crusades, more serfs are freed. The Crusades also increased international trade and the exchange of ideas and technology around the world. Many Europeans were introduced, thanks to the Crusades, to new spices like pepper and cinnamon, sugar, dates, pistachios, watermelon, and lemons. Travel amongst regular Europeans also increased thanks to the Crusades. Many people took pilgrimages to the Holy Land. Others developed a desire to read about pilgrimages and journeys to the Middle East, and that travel would lead to more travel and exploration. 
The Crusades proceeded and may have helped lead Europe into the age of exploration and the colonization of the New World. The core idea of the Crusades, a justified religious war for Christianity, definitely influenced uh, colonization of the New World. Uh, explorers believed they were taking land for Christ, right? A form of manifest destiny. Ideas from the Crusades were used again and again in the early 20th century during the Allied occupation of Palestine. By World War II, the term crusade applied to the war against Nazi Germany. In the modern era, the fight against terrorism has often been called a crusade. Uh, President George Bush used the term after the 9-11 terrorist attack in 2001. Beliefs from the Crusades have also been applied to the modern conflict between Israel and Palestine. But that big old can of worms is a story for another day. Way too much to dive into right now. Uh, right now, I want to just... Uh, get to the takeaways after sharing just one more thought or maybe repeating one more thought is a better way to phrase it. What if Abraham, Jesus, Moses, you know, King David, Muhammad, all the main players in the big three Abrahamic religions, what if none of those guys knew any more about the true nature of God than you or I? What if the entire premise for the Crusades, the entire premise of Islamic empires being attacked and for Christian states doing the attacking for the Catholic Church, calling for the Crusades to happen in the first place as part of God's will? What if all of that is literally built on nothing more heavenly or celestial than, say, the device you're listening to this on? What if all this went down based on nothing more divine than the crazy words of so many wackadoodle cult leaders we have laughed at here on previous episodes? Again. What a wild cosmic joke that would be. To be clear, if not for religion, I do believe we would have killed each other for different reasons over the years, just like we still do today. So I'm not actually blaming religion for death and destruction because without it, I think we would have found other reasons to fight for resources. But if religion is truly not real, what an odd way to rationalize so much death and destruction. What a weird fucking game we've been playing for at least a few thousand years now. And if a bunch of divine shit truly did happen in the Holy Land a few thousand years ago, if prophets did truly live around Jerusalem and miracles really occurred, can we please get to witness another round of some mind-blowing celestial shit so we don't have to just take the words of people who died thousands of years ago that, uh, you know, any of this is actually worth fighting or dying for. That'd be pretty fucking cool. Give me a letter. Come on, Nimrod. Put on a show. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the Holy Land, the place at the center of the Crusades, is a sacred location for Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. At the time of the First Crusade, the Holy Land was under the control of the Egyptian Fatimids. During the First Crusade, the Christian armies successfully captured Jerusalem, uh, but at the cost of many innocent lives. Christians would control J-Town until 1187 when Sultan Saladin captured the city. Uh, J-Town will always be a place at the center of religious conflict because of its importance in the three Abrahamic religions. Number two, the Crusades, not one long drawn out war. Instead, it was a series of at least eight smaller wars slash military expeditions. The main objectives were to take Jerusalem, ah, kind of getting it, and other important crusader states from Muslim control and stop Muslim expansion and increase the power of the Catholic church. But there were also countless other minor military objectives. And actually just really quick, <laughs> Just to remind people, I haven't said this in a while. Uh, if you do get annoyed by the uh, mispronunciation, the mush mouth, I actually am literally tongue-tied. Just never got that uh, fixed as a kid. So not doing it for show. <laughs> my mouth, my brain knows what it wants to do. Tongue is like, nah, nah, we don't have enough uh, movement. Uh, number three, up to 1.7 million people died during the Crusades. Besides the actual fighting, the biggest killers were starvation and disease. Number four, during the siege of Meera, Christians resorted to eating Muslim bodies to avoid starvation. 
chroniclers wrote horrifying accounts describing children being eaten and body parts being roasted over spits. And number five, new info. Uh, white nationalists have been known to draw on the symbols of the Crusades in recent years. The image of the Crusader cross, along with the Latin phrase, uh, Deus Volt, or God wills it, has been seen at modern white supremacist marches, such as the 2017 white nationalist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Time Magazine wrote, in harking back repeatedly to the crusading era, the angry young men of the white supremacist far right mirror the language often used by Islamist extremists and ISIS fighters who glorify suicide bombings and other terror attacks on Westerners and Christians as strikes against citizens of the Crusader coalition. According to Time, the Crusades have propaganda value to those who want to suggest that the Islamic world and Western Christian countries are engaged in a modern day war. In 2019, uh, neo-Nazi Eric Lynn was arrested by the FBI for threatening communications. Court records state that Lynn sent a message to an anonymous victim that said, I thank God every day that President Donald uh, John Trump, is that his actual name, uh, is president and that he will launch a racial war and crusade to keep any dangerous non-white ethnically or culturally foreign group in line. They will be sent to concentration camps. Uh, in 2020, Lynn was sentenced to five years in prison plus three years of supervised release for sending messages that targeted Hispanic people. Uh, Virginia Tech professor of medieval studies, Matt Gabriel, explained to Teen Vogue why this type of language is common among these groups, saying, you have scholarly works that are built from an assumption that Europe was under siege and needed to defend itself. And that blends with pop culture fantasy medieval uh, like Game of Thrones or Kingdom of Heaven that portrays these Christian knights as hyper-masculine warriors. And this warrior fantasy is attractive to people who feel that they are under siege. But as you heard today, Europe not actually under siege, the Middle East was. Western European powers weren't defending themselves in the Crusades. They were the aggressors. Uh, Sierra Lamato, uh, assistant professor at Rowan University, said that white supremacists identify with Crusaders because the Crusades have come to represent a narrative of brave martyrdom in the face of dangerous enemies who threaten white Western exceptionalism. But again, that is based on twisted and untrue, uh, you know, history. Many medieval historians note that these types of erroneous beliefs are the reason it is so important for scholars to now provide accurate information about the Crusades and continue to try and dispel the misguided notions various hate mongers continue to point to to justify horrible actions. So hopefully we did a decent job of sharing some real history today and not just what some people want to believe is real history. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The Crusades have been sucked. Uh, just a broad strokes presentation, of course. If you want to learn more, there's so many great sources that go uh, more in-depth to aspects of it out there. Uh, the Kings and Generals YouTube channel. I've watched a bunch of those videos. A uh, whole bunch of videos breaking down individual crusade battles with like maps and animation. You could lose days diving into all the minutiae of it. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for the help in making Time Suck. Thanks again to Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, the best partner. Thanks to the Art Warlock, Logan Keith, producing and directing today. The Suck Ranger, Tyler C., helping with production. Thanks to Bitelixer for upkeep on the app, uh, the Time Suck app. The Art Warlock, again, for creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com and helping run our socials along with the Suck Ranger and a team managed by social media strategist, Ryan Handelsman. Thanks to producer, Olivia Lee, for the initial research this week. And thanks to the all-seeing eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page, the Mod Squad, making sure Discord keeps running smooth, and everyone over on the Time Suck subreddit and Bad Magic subreddit. Next week on Time Suck, a subject I have wanted to look into for years now, but I just kept forgetting. I keep forgetting to suck this dirt back. 
Uh, then I touched on this guy recently in a scared to death story. And after recording it, immediately emailed Olivia. Uh, and next week, we will learn about a unique serial killer now. Johann Jack Unterweger was an Austrian serial killer who killed victims in Austria, the Czech Republic, and Los Angeles, California. Weird, random, uh, wide-ranging territory, right? He killed at least a dozen women. And sadly, all those murders, other than the first, were so very avoidable. And this is what fascinates me about this guy. Uh, he had a troubled childhood. His mom described him as a sex worker in some sources, abandoned him as a toddler, grew up with an abusive grandfather, started committing crimes at a young age, starting off with theft, then escalating to sexual assault and murder. He gets caught for this first murder, hopefully first. In 1974, Jack raped and strangled an 18-year-old girl, convicted in 1976, sentenced to life in prison, and should have stayed in prison for life. But that didn't happen. He underwent a transformation behind bars, grew up illiterate, but then learned how to read and write in prison, became a prolific writer, a gifted writer, wonderful writer, uh, who created poems, short stories, and plays. Then his 1983 autobiography became a bestseller, turned into a documentary, even taught in some Austrian schools. Jack's writings often expressed his dark thoughts and focused on death, but also he wrote children's stories and discussed his tragic childhood, got a lot of sympathy. His work touched the hearts of many in Austria's elite literary circles, journalists, politicians, the general public, and a bunch of people now petitioned for his early release, and they got what they wanted and will feel real fucking guilty, I'm, I'm guessing, uh, a couple years later. He's released from prison in 1990 when he's just 39 years old. Now he appears on talk shows, gets a job in journalism, becomes a fucking celebrity. A loved celebrity by in Austria, well-respected, admired, and starts killing again. Almost immediately after he was let out, he targets female sex workers in the Czech Republic and Austria, mostly in Vienna. And then as a journalist, he fucking reports on his own murders, even interviews Vienna's police chief about murders he committed, then travels to Los Angeles in June of 1991 on a journalism assignment, checks into the infamous Cecil Hotel, which is how he showed up and scared to death. And kept on killing. Well, next week, we'll go in-depth on the life and crimes of Jack Unterweger, as well as his victims and the investigation that led to his final capture. Uh, right now, let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. Uh, first up today, a very nice death update. Seriously. You'll understand here in a second... A wonderful meat sack, wonderful meat sack, uh, whose name I didn't put in the top. That's why I'm scrolling if you watch this on video. <laughs> Heather uh, sent this in. So let's see what Heather wrote now. Sorry about that, Heather. Uh, Dear Time Suck Overlord, I'm catching up on the back catalog. And since I have a hectic life, I have only made it to episode 288. I say only because I've been listening for years now. The episode I just listened to is about Dr. Kevorkian, a.k.a. Dr. Death. This episode struck a nerve with me because I live in Oregon and worked in geriatric care for many years. I've seen so many people suffer needlessly and I have seen so many choose to make the most of their circumstances. The quality of one's life is theirs to determine. A patient and friend of mine decided he was done at 39. I've met many hundred plus year olds refuse to slow down until the very end. The reason I felt it was important to write to you is the experience I had at my last caregiving job before I left work at a daycare or left to work at a daycare. A patient of mine who I'll refer to as V was walking back to her room after eating lunch and stopped, and I stopped to notice her legs were extremely swollen and weeping. This occurs in congestive heart failure patients when their heart is too weak to pump fluid around their body for removal. It pools in the legs because of gravity and they are placed on diuretics which eliminate water from the body uh, 
When their legs get too full of fluid, it will begin to weep from their skin and sometimes pool in blisters. This is a sign that their condition is worsening and their meds are no longer as effective. I consulted the nurse. We decided this patient needed to go to the hospital. That started a many month long process of trying to treat her while V and her family refused at almost every turn. Uh, she rapidly declined, went from being independent to needing every uh, you know, hourly checks to ensure she hadn't fallen while trying to do something herself. This was no life for V. She could no longer do the things she enjoyed. Her life was not hers anymore and she wanted it to end. I had never been uh, before had a patient enact their death with dignity rights. That process took months. All the while, she was still receiving treatments to avoid infection or injury and to maintain the highest quality of life possible. V went through rigorous psych exams, spoke with different doctors, was evaluated uh, evaluated multiple times. During these visits, her care team not allowed in the room, nor was her family. This was to ensure there was no one coercing her into making this decision. It had to be her own. On the day of, her family came to be with her and we would check in from time to time. Her doctors brought her a solution of anti-nausea medication and a high dose of morphine for her to ingest when she was ready. V was offered multiple different methods and morphine is what she chose. Just like before, no one was allowed to be in the room when she took the medications, including family members. Once it was done, they were allowed back in and sat with her in her final moments. It was very peaceful and dignified. Over the years, I've had many patients who daily state their wish to die, their want for it to all be over, and the immense pain they are in. Dying is not always a painless drift away. It is often something that many people are ready for years before it comes. I have one last point to touch on before this long email comes to an end. My dad died from cancer in August of this year. He was the kind of person who never wanted to live a half, uh, live half a life. It was all or it was nothing. After surgery to remove the last bit of cancer from his lungs, the recovery didn't go well. He expressed to us that he had no fear of dying. And then as the opportunity came, he felt that he had to take it. I have never wanted him to feel the need to live in pain so that his family wouldn't have to miss him. He was my best friend and grieving him has been the hardest thing I've done to date. But knowing that he went out on his terms by choosing to remove the oxygen that was helping him live and that he is no longer in pain helps me through it. I am uh, truly sorry for this very long email, but thank you for letting me share my experience. If you read this on the show, I would love for you to give a reference to my wonderful, kind, forgiving, and always wise dad, Tucker Haywood, who now resides in Nimrod's glorious ball sack and is forever in peace. Thank you and keep on sucking. Much love, Heather Haywood. Heather, what a fucking beautiful message you wrote. Uh, it seemed to have really triggered my allergies when I first read it. Maybe it's the spring pollen, but of course, really, it was your touchy message. Uh, I could feel the love you have for your awesome father, Tucker. He is, you know, he is a Nimrod's ball sack and he's having a grand old time. I, uh, I went on a pretty hefty shroom trip this past weekend. I saw him smoking a little weed with Lucifina in a super cool lounge, listening to some jazz, drinking some gin. He's happy. And thank you for explaining in your eyewitness way why dying with dignity should be a choice that each of us gets to make for ourselves. And no government or misguided moral crusader, right, uh, should be able to uh, get in our way. Uh, crusader must be lodged in my subconscious now. Uh, how dare others tell us how we're allowed to die, right? I'm all for getting help for suicidal ideation when it comes from someone who is physically healthy. Get all the treatment you can to make sure your mind is not just playing tricks on you. But when your body is done, when your life is going to be nothing but pain and or a steady decline into helplessness, the choice to self-terminate terminate is no longer irrational. It's reasonable. It's humane. Hail Nimrod, Heather. Uh, you're fucking awesome. Uh, now a little comedic relief. Uh, how about a, a Cummins Law update from a satanic sucker, Samantha Silvers. This fucking demon magnet writes, Howdy, mother sucker. I have a Cummins Law story for you. I had a need to uh, visit a quick clinic for an ear infection and I was quickly trying to get out the door. 
I'm a mom to a six-month-old, and as you know, being a parent means you often have a hard time being able to leave to get anywhere. My husband kept the baby busy at home so I could just get ready and go get things taken care of. When I got to the clinic, they told me I would have to wait an hour. I could wait in my car. No big deal. I walked to the place next door for some food, went back to my car to stuff my face, listen to Time Suck, and send a few texts to my best friend. The Bluetooth function in my car is uh, at a reasonable volume, but I forgot the second a voice gets loud, people in the surrounding area can hear it quite well. While I'm enjoying my rare moment of solitude and stuffing fries in my face, feral mom style, because I was really freaking hungry, a bit about Whipple came on and I felt eyes on me. I turn to see an older woman standing by the car next to me and staring at me in horror while my mouth is filled with fries and your voice is yelling, fuck you, fuck your family, Whipple. She shakes her head and mouths, what the fuck? Then gets in her car to quickly drive away from the crazy devil lady in the car next to her. It's the little things in life to bring us joy, you know? Could you please give a shout out to my amazing best friend, Angie? She surprised me with tickets to see her stand up. We snatched uh, our husbands, caught your show in Bloomington, had a blast and loved every minute. P.S. Sorry, I hollered at you from across the street in Bloomington. It was mine and my husband's first adult night out since our kiddo made his appearance into the world. And I got a little too excited. Thanks for all you do, Samantha. Well, Samantha, don't be sorry. Bloomington was so fun. That is such a cool Indiana town. I love the energy there so much. Uh, Sorry, but I, I cannot give a shout out to Angie. I'm sure you didn't know this, but I fucking hate that bitch. One of my least favorite people. It was hard at that show when I saw her in the crowd not to walk off the stage, literally pick her up, and fucking throw her out the nearest window. Uh, Kate and of course. Hi, Angie. Uh, thanks for being awesome. Bringing some friends out. Samantha, find that old lady again. This time, grab her by the shoulders. Scream some whipple shit right into her face. Toss out a hell Satan. And then just leave her with that moment. Why? I don't know. I just like imagining weird shit like that. Probably because I'm mentally ill. Uh, now just one more. My final update from a cool-ass sack with a cool-ass name sharing some cool-ass shit. Bill writes, Hi, Dan. Been listening to Scared to Death and Time Suck for a while now and love them both. Went through Scared to Death chronologically, but I just picked up Time Suck on the weekly updates and went back to listen to topics that interested me as a way to work through the catalog. I kind of danced around it for a while, but I finally listened to your transgender episode. Transgender topic? Episode about transgender? Anyways, media about trans people by people who aren't trans or queer feels like it tends to lean towards anti-trans sentiment, even if it's not intentional. With all the transphobic and sexist laws being passed around the country, I figured it was as good a time as any to finally listen Just wanted to let you know that I appreciate how you approach such a complex and polarizing topic with an open mind and respect. It reminded me that most people don't view trans people as evil groomers who are trying to rape women and indoctrinate kids, but as people deserving of happiness and acceptance like anyone else. I'm scared of how much some people in power hate people like me, so much so that they're willing to take the rights of women and minorities in order to punish, quote unquote, trans people. I know you generally approach topics from both sides in order to help people see things outside their echo chambers, but I appreciate that you didn't include transphobic hate and or denying that trans people exist. If this happens to get read on the show, this is for anyone who needs to hear it. My existence isn't inherently political, and it's not a belief system. Like any other community, there are some loud assholes that are easy to hate, but most trans and queer people are just trying to live their lives in safety and happiness. Thanks so much if you take the time to read this. I love all the good that Bad Magic brings to the world. I love learning about these weird-ass topics that I never would have known about otherwise uh, that I can then info dump to all my friends throughout the week until the next episode. Love you guys. Thanks for all you do. Keep on sucking. Best, Bell. Bell, you're the fucking best. Some A-plus quotes are in there in that email. Uh, my existence isn't inherently political. Exactly. Way too many loud motherfuckers out there today just trying to read politics into everything because that's how they see the world. 
not how many of the people they're fucking yelling at do. And I want to scream at them, right? Just because you're a simple, binary, lazy-ass thinker, that doesn't mean fucking I am. Stop projecting your worldview onto me. Yeah, your life, Bell, is not a political statement, an endorsement of some liberal agenda or whatever. It's just your life. Being transgender doesn't mean you give a fuck about politics. Any more than having blue eyes or brown hair means that you care one way or the other about you know anything political. You, just like me, just trying to find happiness, right? Perhaps a purpose as to why you're here. Uh, maybe trying to find where the best burger in town is, something to watch uh, on streaming services. Uh, watch Yellow Jackets if you haven't seen it, or Ted Lasso if you want something touching and light. And also, I love to, like any community, there are some loud assholes that are easy to hate. Yeah, exactly. If you have limited exposure to transgender people and the few you have met or seen online are obnoxious and fucking annoying, that doesn't mean the majority are at all. That's just your brain trying to trick you, trying to rapidly oversimplify and categorize shit in ways that used to help us when we were cave people and needed to determine safety threats quickly for our survival, but that doesn't help us now. When your brain does that, quickly remind yourself of people who look like you, people of your sexual persuasion or race, gender, whatever, who are also fucking annoying. I'm sure you can come up with plenty of examples. Assholes do not have a consistent gender, skin color, creed, sexual preference, etc. I love you, Belle. And so does Lucifina and Nimrod and Triple M wants to share some uh, demos with you while you pet Bojangles. I uh, hope you keep enjoying this insanity. I hope the political tides shift away soon from the fear-based, paranoid, illogical concerns backed by fucking nothing but misguided notions. And we can focus on actual important shit like fixing the economy or healthcare, education systems. And we can stop worrying about dumb shit like what sexual preferences kids are allowed to be fucking talked about at school. Uh, fuck the dumb shit and hail Nimrod. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Scared to death and time suck each week. Secret suck each week for space lizards. Uh, please do not declare a holy war this week. You're not God's chosen warrior. You're probably, you're probably just bored and maybe hungry. Eat a sandwich, get a job or another job, and you know find a good show to get lost in. Like I just talked about Ted Lasso. It, it was great and it wrapped up nicely if you haven't seen it. Uh, way easier to lay on the couch and watch some some good stuff than it is to kill a bunch of infidels. You could also just keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. Uh, hey, I, I felt a little weird doing this earlier because you know I was joking around about it, but uh, I, I, I want to read a a letter right now that uh, that God that God gave me. Dear Dan, this is God. I need you to find a donkey and start another crusade. Get everyone you can gather together, and this time I need you to march on Canada. You know they're evil. You really think they won't let you in because of one DUI from like 13 years ago? No, they won't let you in because they're infidels, and you're my chosen warrior. And when you get up there, I want you to live mostly on warm, salty poutine and cold, refreshing beer. Oh, and I want you to cut a bunch of people's fucking heads off and burn a bunch of other people. Right? Bunch of frickin' hosers, eh? Now get moving. It's gonna take you a while to amass an army, uh, but not that long, you know, because you don't need a really big one because, you know, it's it's Canada. Thanks. God. And P.S. Ease up on the Jesus jokes. Come on, bro. That's my boy. Don't make me smite you.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.